don't want to scare anyone. But I'm going to give it to you straight about Jason. His body was never recovered from the lake after he drowned. And if you listen to the old timers in town, they'll tell you he's still out there. Some sort of demented creature. Surviving in the wilderness. Full grown by now. Stalking. Stealing what he needs. Living off wild animals and vegetation. Some folks claim they've even seen him. Right in this area. The girl who survived that night at Camp Blood, that Friday the 13th, she claimed she saw She disappeared two months later. Vanished. Blood was everywhere. No one knows what happened to her. Legend has it that Jason saw his mother beheaded that night, and he took his revenge. A revenge that he'll continue to seek if anyone ever enters his wilderness again. And by now, I guess you all know, we're the first to return here. Five years, five long years he's been dormant. And he's hungry. Jason's out there. Watching. Always on the prowl for intruders. Waiting to kill. Waiting to devour. Coming to you from the last video store in the universe, it's Binge Movies 135. I'm Jason. This is the show that ranks eliminates movies to determine which ones are most worthy of preservation for all time, even beyond the end times. On this episode, we rank Friday the 13th, Part 1! My co-host here today is a man whose love and affection have been chasing for nearly a decade, and I have yet to acquire it. Paul, on every one of these episodes, I, I, I've, I've referred to you as a big brother. I've referred to you as my best friend in podcasting. I've referred to you as the golden god of guests. You never return the compliment on Mike. What is our relationship? Well, I, I think that's because you're the little brother. You don't get any love from me, Jason. That's just not appropriate. You've got you've to continue to chase the undeniable and unattainable. We're all getting along, you and I especially. We're getting along in the tooth of the podcast game. Me especially. Come on, big brother status for, for a good reason. I've got a good, <laughs> yeah. what, eight, nine, ten years on you? Jesus. No, no, no. I don't mean our age. I mean the amount of years we've been doing podcasting. Oh, well, both of You've those. been doing two or three years previous to me. I think two years. And then I disappeared for two years. So we'll, we'll say you have a four-year head start on me. That's a long time in podcasting. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's a long time in podcasting. Well, anything yeah, beyond like anything beyond like a year. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long time, let alone seven, stat eight, that said, nine. basically, yeah, 10 to 12 yeah. episodes is the average yeah. amount of, of episodes any podcast ever puts out. So, A lot of our podcasts have been built around us revisiting things that we maybe or our audience are nostalgic for. Will there come an era of which have we ingratiated ourselves 
enough into the hearts and minds of people around the world that we can 10 years, 20 years from now do a nostalgia tour and put Paul and Jason back as old men together to do a revival of binge movies or the countdown or whatever. Wayne will be dead by then, but (laughs) (laughs) what probably for an STI. Yeah. A man who lives his lifestyle is not long for this world, Paul. (laughs) He can't remember Uh, the briefs. He can't remember the briefs. Now you think he's going to remember them 20 years from now when he's in his seventies. He's going to eat a well, 20 years. Maybe still in his sixties. Slow down, Tiger, but still um, (laughs) (laughs) he'll be 87 years old, Paul in 20 years. He's not going to be able to do this mentally with the holes from the ketamine will make him mentally almost 90 years old. (laughs) Well, that's a good point. It's a good point. Look, he's, he's getting older the more we talk. So that's that's actually true when you when you literally think about it. So uh, I don't know. I, I would always be down to revisit because despite – I feel a little bad now despite the joke, the gag at the top of the show. Uh, off mic, I said the same thing. I think you pull out a spectacular show every week, Jason. I tune in even when there's films I've half of them I haven't seen before just to hear your discourse around it. <laughs> Usually, in fact, always with knowledgeable, entertaining guests, your capacity to connect with other podcasters and bring them into the fold of binge movies and have them work the weekend at the video store is absolutely second to none. You are a, you are a pillar in the podcasting community, Jason, and you should be very proud of your achievements. There you go. Do you see what shame can do, folks? You see what shame <laughs> and guilt and a little tear in your eye? I receive that. I'm the happiest boy who ever lived with a tear in my eye. I now pivot to why we're actually here. It's spooky season. It's Halloween. It has become a tradition in independent podcasting. Nay, all podcasting. The top 1% of podcasts in the world is on on the screen. And the top 5% of all podcasts is on the other side of the screen. And you're listening to them. This is the best. Forget all the rest. Let them fuck them all. The only people you need to be listened to are me and Paul. And we're here to bring you a tradition Unlike any other, the Paul and Jason binge movies, countdown, crossover, Halloween, spooktacular. And we're tackling, dare I say, the 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 franchise of the slasher genre. It wasn't the one that started it. It maybe isn't the one most fondly remembered, but it is the one without a doubt that produced the most uh, <laughs> every single year, the most movies, and beyond that, the one that was most frequently imitated. And yes, I know it is in and of itself an imitation. We will get to that when we do our deep dive. Do you remember when people used to judge things on a standard of moral cleanliness? People would refer to movies, magazines, uh, pornography, language as being either clean or dirty. I guess there's no clean pornography, but people would say that's, that's dirty language or that movie has dirty language or that that's a dirty bookstore or I found my uncle's dirty magazines or whatever, whatever. Yep. And even mainstream entertainment would get labeled with, and this is as mainstream as the slasher ever got because of who released it. And we'll get into that as well. But these movies were definitely of the label in the United States as, even though Paramount was putting them out, as being dirty movies. These were dirty. The, the children, kids, young adults were not supposed to be watching this because this was reprobate material. Did, did the Friday the 13th series carry that connotation in Australia, even though you're a little bit older than me? And did, was Australia as concerned with 
moral dirtiness and cleanliness as the U.S. was in the 80s and early 90s. Look, I have to assume it was, though I wasn't, as much as I am older, I wasn't old enough to, to be able to see these films at the cinema all the way through until Friday, uh, Jason Goes to Hell, Friday 13th Part 9, which we're obviously not covering today in the first half of this binge. But I think back to the 80s and if you think, and it was, I understand America was bad and in the UK they had the video nasties and yeah, all these yep. films which were banned and not allowed to be seen because, oh my God, they could inspire our youth to do horrendous and terrible things and, you know, somebody think of the children, that South Park kind of right. cliche. Here in Australia, we were even worse in a lot of ways. So, hmm. for example, in my hometown of Perth, up until Australia won the America's Cup from you Americans, and brought it here in 1983, our fresco dining was not permitted because it was too much of a chance of a health scare. You couldn't eat outside at a restaurant? You weren't allowed to eat outside at a restaurant up until 1983. You, you, <laughs> you weren't in Perth? <laughs> did not <laughs> allow patio dining? All the way up until I think it was 2000 and... 20? I want to say mid, mid, <laughs> mid-2000s, you weren't allowed to show an R-rated film on Good Friday. See that? Okay, see, that's very interesting, right? It's very interesting where these moral lines and moral fault lines fall in certain cultures and where they don't because Australia has the reputation on this side of the earth of being a very racist but very progressive culture. And uh, you know, are – unfortunately. Yeah, you are telling me that maybe it wasn't as progressive as we thought. It's just the conservatism manifested in different ways. Yeah, I think Perth is probably, along with maybe Queensland, and apologies to any listeners in Queensland if this is not true because I've, I've spent a grand total of three weeks of my life there. But my sense is, and, and Adelaide as well, which is known as the city of churches, compared to the Sydneys and Melbournes, which are the meccas, which are the, the multicultural metropolitan sort of yeah. idea, I think, that, that perhaps Americans have because they do house about – those two states house more than half the country's population, I think, mm. around about that. The rest of us are a bit kind of backwards and my state, West Australia, WA, the e acronym, it's also known as wait a while because everything takes longer to get here. Fashion. Wow. It's just that far removed from everywhere else in the country that every it sort of peters over here eventually, but we're behind. That's the, the prevailing opinion. And I think the same thing applies here in terms of when R-rated films could be shown and our fresco dining and probably a litany of other examples I could offer if I could think of them off the top of my head. Halloween is, an, is ostensibly an independent series of films, especially the first one. It's more or less an independent film that, um, and at one point was like the highest grossing independent film of all time or whatever. We talked about mm, that back yep. in the day. Nightmare on Elm Street, which comes out after this Friday the 13th series in the mid 80s, really at the end, tail end of the slasher craze and slasher boom, and almost reinvents it because it becomes more surreal, metaphysical. We talked about that. Find the episode. But Nightmare on Elm Street is released by New Line Cinema, which was more or less a distributor, not really a producer of film and was a low level distributor. It's a read. There's a reason why it was known as the house that Freddie built because it wasn't until yeah. a nightmare on Elm street broke big that they became any kind of player whatsoever, like outside of Canada. And, and even then for a long time, all the way, basically almost up until the late eighties, they were still doing mid budget, low budget fare, but getting a bigger, bigger footprint in theaters. That is not the case with Friday the 13th. 
smack dab in the middle of these two franchises is the only slasher franchise that was released. It wasn't originally produced by, but was picked up for distribution and, and released and then held on to forever pretty much for almost a decade by one of the major studios of from the golden era of the studio system. MGM might've picked up distribution in a few horror movies or a few slashers, but they were not directly involved in the production of them. Uh, Columbia wasn't, you know, you go down the list, right? None of the old tiny yeah, yep. movie studios were paramount and the eighties were a heyday for paramount pictures because they had a piece of the Indiana Jones franchise. If you go down a list of movies, it was one of the biggest growth periods for a predominant, like a media studio. They even ended up owning theme parks here in the eighties in the United States. One right here in my home state, which was Paramount's Kings Island, which was, you know, tied in. They had a top gun roller coaster and it tied in all of these properties that they own. Eventually they get picked up by their uh, CBS. And then that rolled over into Viacom and, on we go. But in this moment of history here for the part one, where we cover Friday the 13th, part one through five on this episode, this is paramount in its prestige time. It still has prestige. It is a studio that had gotten through the collapse of the studio system, mm-hmm. the emergence of the new Hollywood and came back roaring in the late seventies, early eighties and was dominating the box office with every kind of conceivable movie. And yet, some of the biggest successes that they had in the eighties financially cost to profit ratio wise. Yeah. Friday the 13th films to their shame, to their (laughs) absolute shame. Frank Mancuso senior was either a development guy. I think he eventually worked his way up to president of Paramount pictures. He, this whole thing was conceived. Sean S Cunningham had a title in his head which was Friday the 13th. He thought it would make a great spooky movie. He had no idea what it was going to be about. Halloween comes out and makes all the money in the world. And it's like, if that. we can just get, <laughs> yeah, let's do that. He takes out a newspaper ad in the trades announcing Friday the 13th, the scariest movie ever made. Somehow the word gets around Hollywood. It gets the desk of Frank Mancuso Jr., who I don't think was president of Paramount yet. And is like, We'll help you make the movie. You make it. We'll distribute it. You get the financing for it. We'll put it in theaters. They do. And we'll get to it when we get to the, fir- the next movie, the first movie. It makes all the money in the world. And yet consistently, publicly, by critics, by audiences, by parents groups, by Paramount Pictures themselves, there was so much indignation and shame and the label of, these are dirty films. <laughs> Got late. And I think it's only because it was coming from a studio with prestige back in the 80s when that still existed. Studios have no prestige anymore, Paul. But back in the day, yeah. especially for money, 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 money. Right. But that was almost a new concept because if you and I were doing a podcast in 1980, which would be a radio show, we were reviewing movies on the radio in the 80s, right? You and I together. We would have grown up with all of these cinemascope films and 
And we mm. would have gone and seen Paramount theaters and a, a Paramount movies and a Paramount theater. And we'd have seen the biggest stars and the biggest screen. And there was all this hoopla. And we would have been reared on the hype machine of the studio system. Then we would have seen its downfall. And it would have felt like in 1980, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Look at this junk they're putting out. <laughs> They're not putting out the great westerns. They're not putting out the great musicals that we grew up on. They don't make movies like they used to, which we find ourselves as movie podcasters saying frequently about the 80s and 90s. Are you, I'm trying to draw a parallel here. Are we the cantankerous movie critics of our era? And our, because, you know, we're, now we're like, oh, all the movie studios care about is money and sequels and reboots. But back in my day, you had mid-tier movies and adult dramas and all this sort of shit. What do you think? I mean, interesting, interesting discussion point. I heard your rant to open your Nope review. Go back and listen to that one <laughs> if you haven't already. And I did wonder how much that was squarely aimed at me. Uh, but otherwise, <laughs> you're supposed none to of it. There, Jason. <laughs> yeah, well, none of um, it. Yeah. But otherwise, I hear what you're saying. I guess when you style yourself and I guess as reluctant as I am to embrace the term critic, cause I just feel like I'm someone who's got a, a voice, which a few people listen to thanks to this podcast we've built up over the years, but yeah, you do pine for what you used to have. I guess that's a bit of a rose colored glasses. Yeah. Stereotype that I think everybody has to a greater or lesser extent, unless your past was highly traumatic and, and awful. So other than that, I think most people will think back to their, early or their tweens or their early teens and say those were the best films ever made like you ask people a sample like if you watch now so for example i watched citizen kane when i was 42 or 43 it's a good film for its time i can see how innovative it was didn't blow my two and a half stars (laughs) i think i gave three three stars maybe three and a half even (laughs) didn't blow my mind the way because the the expectations were too high Uh, you know Other podcasters come and watch Predator very, very late in the day. They say, yeah, it's fine. It's nothing great. And I'm just like, oh, what the fuck? Come on. This is one of the greatest pieces of action cinema ever put on film. Are you talking about Julio from The Contrarians? Wow. Julio. Julio <laughs> exists to to uh, poke people and make them react. Let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> great, great bloke that he is. Um, so I guess, yes, we are that cantankerous kind of pining for the past, but I don't think if the past was released now, we'd be okay with it either. I think the, the, the nuance or the difficulty is, and maybe this is where a little bit the analogy falls down, if we still had the same sensibilities that we hold now, because as you say, binge movie celebrates all cinema, from the absolute yeah. pinnacle and peak of, of Oscar winners through to the suckling. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Everything in between, and I think we yeah. are, we are able to appreciate the B grade, the lower budget, the, um, the 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 nasty, dirty films as much as we can appreciate those Oscar winners and and everything else. So, that's I think a good in nineteen eighty, we still would have loved horror films. Or I think if I'm the person I am now, I still would have loved horror films, and I would have been amazed that a major studio was releasing a series of, of very low budget horror films. But I would have been really pleased by it. You so. Could there possibly be, because one of your nicknames is Negatron on your show. <laughs> sure, yeah. Could Negatron ever be so mad at a movie that he would release and dox the home information of one of its stars so that people could send letters to that person shaming them for starring in the film? <laughs> no. no. If you're gonna, Do you if know you're gonna, what I'm talking about? I, I don't. I have to. Is that Kevin Bacon? No. Gene Siskel. 
in his column, printed Betsy Palmer's home address. Oh, wow. What? And his official review for this movie, as well as, like the for Fra- uh, as well as his, the address for Frank Mancuso, and said, write these people's letters and shame them for being this, because he took it as an anti-woman, anti-feminist, reactionary film that was um, just nothing but trash and was pornographic. And Betsy Palmer, anti-feminist, because there's so many women. That, there's so many. There's so many women that are killed. That's a very good point. One other thing that bothers me is that the behavior that these women are engaging in, if done by men, would be considered brave, bold, and fun. Mm-hmm. Going hitchhiking, you know, mm-hmm. going across the country like an easy rider, very typical. A sure. woman tries to do something like that in these films. Whammo, they get sliced up. Okay, by a woman, but anyway, but <laughs> the. This first major, the major criticisms of this film, Paul, were that it was nothing but gratuitous nudity, horrific gore, blood, guts, violence. Hold on to your hats for a later film, then. They were absolutely degrading towards women. The slasher genre and the Friday the 13th movie genre in particular, since it was the best mainstream example, was horrifically, it was a conservative reaction against the women's liberation movement of the 60s and 70s. It wasn't until feminist scholars revisited the slashers and said, no, in some cases that might be true, but in some of these movies, the women are the most empowered characters and they got kind of reinterpreted. They're the only ones that have any bloody development whatsoever. Right. So I think what's interesting is um, as we revisit these films, Halloween, I think, is a spectacular film. Um, absolutely it's just like the, not even a horror movie best. it's just a good film yep the rest of the series we didn't really care for and I liked Halloween nope. 3 you hated it but I, I yep. the rest of the series just go back and listen to what we had to say Nightmare on Elm Street we were in more of a disagreement with I really ended up not liking the series upon a, upon a revisit for a variety of reasons but in the end you and I both kind of came away with yeah it's not really as good as we remembered it being yep Yep. So here is Friday the 13th. I don't want to get into what you feel about this series presently, but as you were growing up, did you have any fondness connection to, I know you couldn't see them in theaters, this series? Wait a second. Friday the 13th? I thought we were doing Ghoulies. I've watched Ghoulies 1 through 4. Yes, the legend continues. Because they're back. It's Muggers 0 and Ghoulies 4. Have I got a treat Folks, for you? I wanted Paul to do Ghoulies for so many years. <laughs> Ghoulies go to college. Ghoulies go to college, Paul. A frat oh sex God. comedy starring Ghoulies. They come out of toilets, Paul. There's, all, there's, I mean, just think about it. As I said, wasn't old enough to watch. The first one of these films I remember watching at home, being allowed to watch at home. And this, again, shows you the 80s versus the 2020s, where I'm umming and ahhing about whether my daughter can watch Eternals because it's got a sex scene in it. I was 11 years old when I watched Friday the 13th, maybe 12. (laughs) Friday the 13th, colon, a new beginning. I was that young. That was my first introduction, and then I was allowed to wind my way back through and watch all the previous films, and then I literally remember being excited about watching number six, so not that we're getting to number six today, that's for for next week's show. Oh, yeah. So, I I was right on board, and as I said, nine was my first time at the cinema, took my then-girlfriend to see nine, she managed to stay with me for a few years after that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, we'll get so to that I, I was all in on this series. I really 
you know, this was part of my development as a horror film fan was watching all these and, and consuming them as they came out. And I'm also, we're not covering it, but I'm a defender of the remake. I think The Defender's a pretty good slasher film circa the year that it came out. And I'm disappointed we didn't get a sequel to it nor another Friday 13th film since then. We'll get into that one as well. Um, we'll get into why we haven't gotten a sequel. But, okay. The reason why we're not covering the remake is because many moons ago, my dearly departed podcast partner, Pat. Rest in peace. Did horrible horror remakes, and we did the Friday the 13th one. And we both came away with it going, ah, I was actually pretty all right. It's basically just a mashup yeah. of the first three or four films. And, but filmed you know, better and glossier. Yes, and, yeah. yes. The biggest issue with that movie is, I think gets to the heart of why these movies were so appealing as a young person back in the eighties and early nineties. And that is this. And I said this on that episode and I stand by it. And I think my theory is even more correct now, five, six years later. The, the, the promise of the Friday, the 13th movies was you're going to see something you're not supposed to see. Yep. Whether it was a pair of boobs or it was blood and guts, parents, critics, uh, you know, uh, cinephiles, <laughs> adults, they don't want you to see this because there's something wrong. It's dirty. And they mm -hmm. created a taboo around it. Well, it must be the scariest thing ever. It must be the goriest thing ever. It must be the, must be basically porno. So I got to see it. And it incentivized you as a young person to really want to watch it. Now, upon one, a revisit and two, thanks to the MPAA, all of these movies, even the theatrical versions, were cut to shit. And they're oh, not God. anywhere near as gratuitous in the nudity or the violence as anyone ever made them out to be. <laughs> but you didn't know that as a kid. And in fact, Paul, there's a station over here, a cable station. It's changed a lot since the late 80s, early 90s. It was called the USA Network. Still exists. It used to be the Madison Square Garden Live Network or whatever. They did a lot of sports stuff. It became USA Network. It was one of the first kind of general entertainment. It had sports. It had news. It had Everything you could imagine, you know, some movies, some sitcoms, right. some game shows, whatever, in the, in the United States. And um, it launched, or actually it launched in 1980, the year of this first film. And one of the things that they would do is after about 7 o'clock at night, to bolster their, their new network, they would essentially air a bunch of movies and tease it in their interstitials as if, hey, <laughs> we might just forget to censor some of these tits. <laughs> and it was especially true of their a series they had, which was like night flights that eventually got replaced by up all night. And they would show softcore, uh, right. Sex films basically, but heavily edited. So there was no nudity. So there's no purpose in watching them. What? But, but, <laughs> but, yeah, Ron Shear and Gilbert Godfrey were hosts. Uh, Ron Shear hosted on Fridays. Gilbert Godfrey hosted on Saturdays. They just kind of hosted in between commercial breaks. They'd go to the movie, and it was all like sex, ski, sorority, slut, seven, or whatever, you know? And it was all like B, C, D grade sexploitation films. Pot boilers is what we used to call them. Stuff that Marilyn Chambers would have starred in post her hardcore career. But they would cut all the nudity out. What's the point? <laughs> it's Ron here, your bedtime buddy in USA, up all night with her own dream team. And it's also the Linnea Quigley Film Festival. Yes, it is. But more than that, it's Ronda Olympics. Yes. Yay! Yay! And coming up next is the boxing event, and you won't want to miss this. 
Oh. Right, Lainey? Oh, oh yeah. You hurt me softly. Oh. <laughs> but next, the squad reveals a secret weapon for busting the Vicerama Bimbo Cop. <laughs> Let's get back to Vice Academy 2 with your late night flight on USA Up. <laughs> All night. They also showed a lot of B-movies. So the first time I ever saw... Um, the Last Starfighter. It was on a double bill. The Last Starfighter and the Wraith. Are and we calling the Last Starfighter B? No, it's a definitely a B movie. A plus. <laughs> it's a great movie, but it, but you know, budget wise, it's a B movie. Okay. The other staple of their later in the evening entertainment was the Friday the Thirteenth movies. When full moons rule the evening sky, Camp Crystal Lake begins to die. With young and able counselors slain, there's just one boy that will remain. His name is Jason, and these are his days. It's Friday the 13th on USA. Just pray that Jason's not after you. As we begin Friday the 13th, part two, next on USA. One, every every time Friday the 13th appeared in a calendar, they do a marathon of whatever movies they had right. the rights to or had been released at that time. And two, uh, they would just show them on random weekends anyways. They were just in heavy rotation. We're short. We're short content. Yeah, what it, are we going to do? I know. <laughs> yeah, Friday the 13th. And they always marketed it as, oh boy, you're going to see something you're not supposed to. And you never did. But here's the point. Because these movies had already been edited down. And then, because they edited them down again for television, it made them infinitely more scary because your mind as a kid was going, if what did they cut out? Oh my God. And it made them feel even more taboo because they were really? so cut. They were, there was, it was, it was the effect of your imagination makes it worse than what was actually on the screen. It was years before I saw these movies in their theatrical form. And I was stunned that the theatrical films were as bloodless as they were. Cause I thought that I was watching filth on television and getting away with it. And in fact, it was all, Gene Siskel hate train hype. If I if if I'm gonna give a preview to my reviews that we're about to do here, it yeah. is the more cut they are, the lower my score is because <laughs> holy fucking shit. Does, okay. Do a couple of these films really show you nothing? And that's the oh, yeah, whole nothing. point that you're here. You're here to yeah. be to see horrendous, gory kills. You're here to see usually unlikable characters knocked yes. off one by one until we're just left with the final girl and sometimes an, an attachee and they're battling yeah. Jason or she's battling Jason with maybe a little bit of help. And if the film or Jason's mother that, or someone dressed or up Jason's as Jason mother, or a yep. slug creature or a robot Jason. <laughs> Jason surprisingly <laughs> makes less appearances in his own series and we'll, we'll get into it. As we the get further he goes. Well, yeah. The, yeah. Okay. I say all this to say, a long-time listener of this show, this is 100% true, sent me a message and wanted me to ask you a question. Ooh, okay. And they wanted to ask, is, does Paul only, is Paul's taste in movies limited to if they have blood? Hmm. No, but it, when it comes to this kind of film, probably. Because yeah. if you're going to take a slasher film and you're going to give me a character <laughs> drama about whether a girl is relating to her mother well enough and the father who's estranged is now realizes he needs to be home more often and when he comes home 
one of them gets stabbed by a murderer and then that's the end of the film. That's not what I'm here for. So it's going to deliver on what it promises. But at the same time, if I go to watch Parasite and it just becomes a slasher film, that's not what I'm there for either. So it's all about mm. what, how it's marketed, advertised. And, and obviously it. I respond to gore and, and whatever in films, 100% for sure. I take that. If that's a criticism, I'm going to wear it on the chin. I like that as long as it's appropriate to the film. So will you grade any of these films higher than you did Sunset Boulevard? Yeah. You have Sunset Boulevard two and a half stars. Yep. There's there's two. <laughs> <laughs> well, without much further ado, I'm they looking deliver, at- <laughs> they deliver better for me. What can I say? <laughs> I'm looking at my watch. I think it's about that time. Paul has no taste, but let's see what his <laughs> taste is for when it comes to 80s slasher, quote unquote, gore porn. Of course, I'm talking about the very first film in the series. It's a long preamble to get to this. 1980s Friday the 13th, which currently has a 63% on Rotten Tomatoes. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Friday the 13th. You may only see it once, but that will be enough. Friday the 13th, rated R. I watched the uncut version this time, Paul, which was still directed by Sean S. Cunningham. It was written by Victor Miller. If you want to know the source of a long gestating lawsuit and rights dispute, it was between the Mancusos, Cunningham, the studio, which now would be discovery plus of all people because they own warner brothers who owns new line cinema who bought this franchise from paramount in the early 90s um but victor miller is the one who is suing to say hey i create all these characters and therefore i have the right and i should be the the head of the franchise moving forward that is right. i think since, since the point of this recording been resolved and we allegedly may be getting the 13th friday the 13th uh, in 2023 me. I hope they call it Friday the 13th squared. I think they, I hope they just call it Friday the 13th. If there's ever been will. a soft reboot that actually deserves the title, it's this one because it's the 13th Friday film. Just call it Friday the 13th. Yep. Um, it is, of course, a triumph return of Kevin Bacon, last seen in Apollo 13, ironically. Oh. And let me tell you something, Paul. He is all hog in this film. <laughs> Sun's out, hog's out. This guy's whole hog in it all the way. This one was released May 9th, 1980 on a budget of $550,000. This film made yeah. $59.8 million. And we want to know why they made 12 of these things. Craze stalker kills camp counselors trying to reopen a cursed camp. Jason's mom has got it going on in the first of the great remake slash homage slash films to Halloween. Okay. At this point, Sean S. Cunningham, who's the director of this film, had done like four or five films. Two, they used to call marital aid movies, which was just softcore porn. As, well, I, I should say, <laughs> that's what they were called. They're called marital aid films. It was softcore porn for the suburbs, basically. Uh, he made two. One was called The Art of Marriage. The other was called Together. He made one sex comedy, sexploitation comedy called The Case of the Full Moon Murderers. It's as funny as you would think. Uh, it, yep. And then he made two failed kids movies, Here Come the Tigers and Manny's Orphans, which were kind of bad news bears ripoffs. 
there's a consensus here in his filmography, which is this guy was just looking, yeah, for anything to make money. Uh, marital aid films, pornography was making money at this time. Uh, uh, you know, weird sex stuff was making money, filth, yeah. And kids' movies were making money. Well, none of those movies really made any money. He was a failure in all of them. And he himself admits that he was basically like, I need a hit. I need to make something that's going to generate a bunch of money because I'm broke. Uh, his other claim to fame is that he was one of the producers on The Last House on the left with Wes Craven uh, you know, previous to this film. So him and Victor Miller, there's a either it was still in the theaters or it was a revival screening of the original Halloween. And they were like, that's what we can do. We can make one of those because it's easy enough, right? Because Halloween was this phenom because it was made for such little money and it made so much money. And they're like, we could do that. And so they do that. They go to a screening of it and literally in the screening, they both admit to this. They were just writing notes of, well, we could oh do this God. and we could do that. And they reduced the first Halloween to what they saw as a formula of elements that if they put it into their movie, they could replicate it successfully enough to make money. It was simply a cash grab. Hmm. I will well, say well there's done, a, it worked. Halloween isn't the only thing I pick up on in this movie upon this rewatch though. We get the floating camera effect, especially on close-ups, which is a little cinema verite, a.k.a. it's a little Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Obviously uh, not as documentary style, but there is a little bit of that floating documentary camera effect. Um, to me, the film is three parts Halloween with one part Psycho and a dash of the music from Jaws thrown into the theme song. Doom, 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 doom. Um, Harry Manfredini's yeah. score is owes a lot to Psycho, and in fact, I was writing down like this is just like this is a bad Psycho movie more so than a bad Halloween. The third act is Halloween; the rest of the movie's bad Psycho, and I I just had that in my notes, and then I heard Victor Miller say, "I thought about Psycho, and I just reversed the characters. The son is dead, and the mother's the crazy one who hears the son's what? voice." telling him to kill just like Norman hears his mother saying, kill them, no yeah, man, kill yep. them. It's just that reverse. And I was like, I was, I we felt so justified as a film reviewer. Paul. I was like, vindication. <laughs> I was like, I, maybe I do know what I'm doing here. And what could it off to me was, um, Annie is introduced to us as ostensibly what we would think traditionally would be our protagonist. Because she's kind of responsible. She seems innocent. She loves kids. The whole reason she says that she's going to this camp is because she thinks that kids yeah, deserve right. to be heard and deserve respect and deserve to be safe, which are all things that we would think, you know, in retrospect, Pamela Voorhees would be in favor of, right? Because that's her whole axe to grind, literally, <laughs> or machete to grind <laughs> against camp blood is that there weren't responsible camp counselors. We get the fake out of Christy goes to, with a blue Jeep to go pick her up. We see her get picked up by a blue Jeep, but then mm -hmm. we're in the POV of the killer. It turns out it's not Christy. She's with the murderer and she gets murdered. And so our protagonist gets taken off the table oh, and we get yep, right. wallflower Alice instead. She's the Janet Lee of the film. That's what tipped me off. I'm like, Oh, this is yeah, it's Halloween esque, but what it really is, is it's bad psycho. <laughs> Now, yeah, I see all that. Great pick. Great pick. Oh, yeah. I wrote that. Bit of psycho about that move. Okay. That's as close as I got to yeah. the technology. Okay. 
I now want to ask you a question, get into the psychology here. Did Pamela Voorhees decide to kill these kids because she specifically saw them doing a drowning prank? Oh, interesting. I assumed she was just going to kill anyone who was coming back to try and reopen this camp because it had been, what, 21 years or something before? Yeah. So it's, it just goes 1958 present day, which always makes me laugh when they do the present day because that, that works at the time. It don't work 20 years or even 40 years later, that's for sure. No, no. Jason dies, drowns, I think at 57. and 58, she sure. comes back and stabs yeah. two camp counselors she finds having sex. Then yep. some time goes by, they try to reopen the camp, and then she poisons the lake or the water supply. And so then the Christie's completely go bankrupt. This is like the son of the Christie's or whatever, who's put $25,000 of his own money. He's like, no, by God, we're going to reopen this camp and save my family's legacy. And of course he dies and everybody dies. Um, to me, all of this kind of brings up the main issue that I have with this movie upon this revisit, which is it is specifically structured as a whodunit. But you could yep. absolutely never guess never who did guess it because it. Yeah. Th there isn't a twist. The killer is just is a new character who appears yeah. at the but very end of the third yeah. act. <laughs> so <laughs> and then right, just out loud says, I'm crazy, and here's my crazy motive. <laughs> here's, here's my take on that, though. I yeah. thought that was kind of progressive because it is structuring it like a whodunit. Yeah. And so the whole time you're like, well, maybe it's him because he drove off there and and no, maybe it maybe it's even her because maybe she's a crazy one. Oh no, it's this random, so to speak, other character who does yeah. have a good, if you want to call it that, motive or rationale yeah. behind her crazy actions. So in a way I almost found that to be progressive, that instead of it being a oh, it was this person all along and they managed to hide amongst the the sheep that they're slaughtering, it was just this random other who you've never gotten to see. Their, their character other than from their point of view. So I like that part of it rather than felt cheated out by it. Yeah. To me, that just didn't really work for me. Now, don't get me wrong. I think Betsy Palmer is the best part of the movie. When she shows up, it's like, okay, a real actor has arrived and now we're, we're like in a movie, but yep. I think my frustration with the film is that like there, there are no characters here. There are no backstories. Like Alice has 100%. Like this, completely like they try to write like this vague she's like it's not working out for me like she's like, she has a drawing of christy and he's like is that what i look like and she's like that's what you looked like last night were they are they in a relationship it's never spelled yeah. out yes it's not even always spelled out. it's not too. yeah it's not clear and he's like uh just give me one more chance so you're like okay you think romantically but no he's talking about the camp and he's like just just work for me one more week and then if you don't i'll put you on the the bus or the plane myself or something like that. And then it, but then she's like, Oh, I don't know. She goes, I might have a situation with my family in California. I might have to leave. And it's like, there's this one very terrible scene when they're hanging gutters between Christy and Alice, where they're all, they're talking back and forth. And it's supposed to be the, the, uh, the exposition dump for Alice's character. And every single sentence she says is written as vaguely as possible and it could mean a variety of things are they romantically involved how do they know each other is she just working at the camp what doesn't she like about being there is it the work is it being in the woods nothing is ever described because it's just the most cursory amount of information you could possibly put into a script to give the pretense of 
character background and it, there's just none of it in this movie none of it. if you want if you want character development you've come to the wrong series <laughs> you know you say that but there's a couple of these movies that at the very least within the friday the 13th terms of it do try to give you actual personalities distinguishable yes. personalities yes. to these characters i will agree i will agree that the best of these films absolutely do manage to give you two you know, at least discernible archetypes that are very clearly yeah. differentiated from each other and so there's the jock and there's the nerd and there's the the, the funny guy and there's the really hot girl and there's the bitchy girl and, and da, yeah. da, 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 da. but but and this film doesn't do a great job of that they are just they are just fodder for jason's mum to to wade through but you're right the, the thing that really annoyed me about it was this is steve christie character he drives off to do something and i think he's supposed to be spends, picking annie up yeah but he spends the whole day in a diner and he comes back at like the hour mark of the film to get killed i'm like what the fuck is this he's the, the boss of this place what's going on that's the thing that doesn't i think what it's supposed to be is he went to go pick her up and didn't find her so he waited around the diner thinking she hadn't made it into town yet she For never a long, shows up. Long time. <laughs> yeah, she never shows up. Now you gotta remember, Paul. There's no cell phones. There's no text messaging. Yeah, like, sure. They literally have to hitchhike. These teens are like hitchhiking to this no-name town in the middle of New Jersey, where there's one payphone, and she tries to call the camp. And if you remember, the camp's phones aren't activated yet. The phone company hasn't come out and turned the phone lines on. So he has no way of communicating with this girl. So he, he has no choice but to sit there and wait. And then if she doesn't show up by nightfall, just assume she ghosted them and go back to the camp or whatever. So I, it, that made that made more sense to me. But it's a throwaway line. It's like, well, I better go to town and go pick up the new girl. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's out of the movie. Uh, the other character I, I did like was Bill. I thought Bill was the nice guy and he's helping out the right amount. And it was a bit weird how he's interacting with Alice, if Alice really was with Steve. But we don't know that for sure. So he just seems to generally want to help. And he puts himself out there. Yeah. And probably in a typical film, maybe preceding these slashes sort of genre, he would have been the hero. But he yeah. gets killed off camera as well because that's uh, at least in the cut that I watched there's a lot of off camera kills in this particular film although there's a couple of excellent ones which it made sense in Halloween from Michael because Myers they're in a house because, yeah Whereas, it, well they're yeah. in a house and he's Michael's character is specifically malevolent and it isn't just about the killing it's also about the stalking and the torturing mm-hmm. and there's almost a ritualistic weird way that he does things with the, putting his sister's gravestone in the bed and and that is not obviously, you know, uh, uh, elderly P- Pamela Voorhees. That's not she. How was she able to lift all these people? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That whole f- stumbling across bodies at the exact moment. It's okay to do so because the script now says, let's have the final girl battle. Yeah. Never ceases to annoy the shit out of me. And in some of these latter entries, it's so ridiculous. It's like, one step, boom, falls out of a tree. Three steps the other way. There's another one against the top behind it. Oh, it's so funny. And the, the other thing about when we actually finally get to Jason being the killer, even in his teleporting zombie form, which yeah. we'll get to in our next episode, we Jason is an unstoppable force. He doesn't. He's not theatrical like Freddy. He's not even necessarily malevolent like Michael Myers. He's just a like a beast. So the idea that he's like creatively hiding these bodies doesn't nah, fit his motif no at all. No. no, no. The biggest gift this movie does give us is it kind of begins to create an outline of what I would call the Friday the 13th character template. And you kind of already touched on this, Paul. 
you typically have a sex crazed couple. Yep. This is the couple who will be killed mid coitus or just yep. post coitus. Or just after. Yeah. And yep. usually at the same time or very close yes. to one another. Yep. You have the asshole prankster. Oh, God. The most annoying character <laughs> in every single one of the Friday the 13th films. Every single movie. And this, has this film an honestly got a half prankster. star bump. Got yes. a half star bump because it killed that guy off really early. So I'm like, yes. Really so. early. Now, sometimes the asshole prankster is combined with the next archetype, which is the pathetic nerd. Yes. Right? Now, the pathetic nerd is usually in love or lust with the bitch. Yep. And all of these movies, <laughs> there is the bitch. There's also, this is, the bitch is sometimes combined with the slut. Now, the slut mm -hmm. should not be... Uh, confused with the female as who is a part of the sex craze couple. That's because not she's it. Not in a couple. Yep. Because she's not in a couple. She's not monogamous. She just wants to sleep with everybody, or at least let people think she wants to sleep with everybody. And usually, There's preferably also, the main guy who's really into yes, the final girl, who's not in. Yeah. And the main guy is the bland good guy. Yep. The the bland good guy does not have a distinct personality. <laughs> Or any trait other than usually a decent head of hair and a pretty strong chin jawline. Yep. And usually doesn't look he, too bad with his shirt off. Yes. And he only wants to be with the traumatized good girl. The good girl is our final girl, and she's usually has some kind of broken past or trauma or fear or something that she has to overcome. Which gets worse and worse as the films go on, for sure. Correct. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So part of me wonders, Paul, was the subconscious appeal of this, this particular iteration, and maybe the series as a whole, is that the primarily teenage audience and preteen audience that was seeing these movies could sort of project themselves onto these archetypes and or characters who aren't really characters because since they're not very well defined, they could essentially be anybody, and especially back in this day, at least stateside, Teens and preteens definitely would have had a hell of a lot more experience camping, going to summer camp, yeah, being yeah. in dark and scary woods. It was a more common youth experience today or yesterday than it is today. Do you think that's part of the success is that you could kind of see yourself? These, these, these characters are written so blankly that you could kind of see yourself in the film. So you're suggesting we should give them more credit for this rather than being a... No, a I think it's completely accidental. Writing. No, I oh, think it's okay, accidental. Right. <laughs> I'm saying that it's the, uh, this is subconsciously accidental on the movie maker's part and subconsciously why audiences gravitated towards this, this film and its sequels. I think you've touched on something that's really important, and that is that the setting of this film is very scary. That concept, like yes. you just described, of being in the dark, in the middle of nowhere, you can't, like you said, just pick up your phone and, yep. and call whoever for help. You're alone, and you're putting... Adults are putting their children's safety in the hands of, generally speaking, a bunch of very young adults or 18, yeah. 19 year olds who all they want to do because they're 18, 19 year olds is get drunk or high and have sex, which is, just seems like a, yeah. a ridiculously bad idea. Yet it was <laughs> yeah. part of American culture for how long and maybe still is to this day in some respects. You know, the Southern Kansas. Not so, really anymore, no, but it was no, for not. a long time, 50 years probably. So that. I think that's tapping into something really smart. Yeah. I think that was a good decision to set set the film there. But yeah, I think it's less that you can map yourself onto the final girl or the main guy. It's that 
your friend, you'll know someone who's the slutty girl and you know someone mm. who's the pathetic nerd. And so you can see them there a bit more and can relate maybe at that level because I don't know how many people relate to to Alice with her, like you say, very bland innocuousness that is she with this guy or is she not? Is she into Bill or is she not? Like, she oh, does maybe, smoke maybe weed and drink beer though and play strip poker. Oh, oh she starts so, to. Um, strip, yeah. strip Monopoly? What's it? Strip Monopoly, Monopoly or yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, I I think that's that is part of what's worked here as well. The yeah. but at the end of the day, I think people just enjoy watching attractive people run around do stupid things and then get killed for it. <laughs> all right, as we've done with all of these franchise uh, franchise films within the horror genre, we're going to be talking about best kills, best Jasons, best final girls. Of course, we're going to be determining if this film has the best Jason, and it it. Doesn't it doesn't no. <laughs> have, have a Jason? So we'll get into it. Uh, let's start with best kill. What do you think is the best kill of the first Friday the Thirteenth? Easily, Kevin Bacon's death. Yeah, the, you, you it's to, the bacon you, penetration. You get to see it it yeah. is the bacon penetration. That, the one that sticks up through his throat from the yep. bottom. That's that's some really impressive practical effects. And I was like, whoa, okay. At least he goes out in a memorable way. So well done, Kevin it, the, Bacon. The uncut version just holds on it longer, and there's a giant blood splurt. There's the initial oh, splurt, cool. and then there's just this yep. giant blood splurt, and he's gargling on his own blood. And the thing is, it honestly holds on it so long that you can start to see the gimmick. You can ah, start okay. to figure out the, how the gag is done. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, uh. And so I think it, the cut version so the is almost better. better. Yeah, almost okay. in that case. Yeah, because you, it's almost so quick, you it, it passes even in HD because I have the the HD re-release that Shout Factory or Scream Factory put out not that long ago. So, um, so is that your, this the, yours as well or different different for you? Yeah, that's 100%. Baker penetration all day, all night for this film. Is this the best, Jason? Uh, w- what we get here is we get Tom Savini's idea, which is of a hydrocephalic Jason, which is very a strange conceit. The writer of the, the film is 100% saying, Jason is dead. This is at best a dream or a delusion. And they've all come forward subsequently and said, the only reason we put it in there is because we thought we needed a final fright. And Savini had seen Carrie recently and was like, oh, well, Carrie in the dream sequence at the end, Carrie comes out, listen to our Stephen King episode we did with Billy from We Watched a Thing uh, not that long ago. Um, And they just wanted a final scare and apparently that's the scene that got the biggest reaction from test audiences. So they left it in that terrified people of weird mongoloid Jason coming up out of the water. Yeah. But it was always supposed to be a dream. Yeah. Well, and clearly because in the second film, she's alive and well, and at least for the first seven or eight minutes of that film. And the- he's alive and well in a full grown man. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we'll, we'll have to come to. back to that. Yeah. yeah we'll we'll to get to it in a few seconds. Yeah. But, I think it's a strange decision to make him deformed, which obviously has informed everything else that's come afterwards, including his desire to wear, first of all, a bag on his head and then a mask. But yeah, right, uh, a hockey mask. But I'm like, that's an odd choice. Why did he have to be deformed when he drowned? Like, is there an implication well, here that he wasn't worth uh, being looked after because he was a, a disabled child? Like, I don't know. I don't know that Savini's thought of it beyond he they wanted it looks the boy that's scary yeah they wanted the boy who came out of the water to look gross and there's a way of viewing it where he's only deformed because he's 
a ghost or something. He's been in this water, and that's deformed. <laughs> him. Been, then he would have been eaten to death by by yes. fishies. But anyway, right, right, yeah, he would have been more of a zombie. You know which I mean? he, he ev- yeah, which eventually he eventually does. Is. Yeah, <laughs> but I think it was just like we could make this really weird design. And actually, now that you're saying that, I'm remembering Zavini knew a kid in real life who had hydrocephalia or whatever it's called. And looked like that. And he based the design on that kid because as a kid, he was scared of this other child. And he remembered, he remembered the child being bullied and mocked in the neighborhood he grew up in, in like New Jersey or wherever he's from. So the idea was it kind of makes Jason a sympathetic character because he would have, he wasn't just neglected. He was maybe bullied at this camp is the implication. Um, It doesn't, regardless, it doesn't make any sense. No, it's it's completely like, and that's why you know, I guess it's an effective scare, or what it was to audiences, because there's no, that's it, it's all over. the The killers had a head chopped off, and here we are now with. I don't understand why you fall into a boat and drift out to the middle of a lake because you're you're so exhausted. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, right, uh, <laughs> ma'am, we didn't find any boy. Yeah, then that means he's still down there, and uh, it just never <laughs> made any sense whatsoever. But. It was what it was. I guess it left the door open for many sequels, which we're going to get to. But first, we have to score and rank this one. Paul, if you had to give the original Friday the 13th a score out of 10, what would you give it? And where does it rank of the out of the first five for you? Look, perhaps I'm being overly generous, but I think this set us up for everything that's to come. And uh, as much as their rationale slash reasons for making this movie are less than stellar, I think the end craven, product is They're pretty, just craven. Yeah, it's a pretty good... <laughs> pastiche of halloween and psycho and the for me as i said the end reveal worked so i'm giving this a six out of ten and it is my second best of the week i'm also going to give it a six out of ten but it's only my third best for the week i think i think the movie's dull as dishwater (laughs) until betsy palmer arrives and single-handedly saves the day ironically i think I, i i think she does a really really great job she is very good. Yep. Last 10 minutes of the movie that she's in. So it's time to move on. The very next year, 1981's Friday the 13th, Part 2, which currently has a 29% on Rotten Tomatoes. On a June night in 1980, Friday the 13th, 12 of her friends were murdered. Why should Friday the 13th, 1981, be any different friday the 13th part two rated r this film was directed by Stephen minor who was a pa on the first film it was written by ron kurz it was released may 1st 1981 on a budget of 1.25 million it only made 21.7 million mm. still a hell of a profit but way down mm. from the original film Mongo Mountain Man grabs his sack and leaves his shack to slaughter teens. Jason rides for the first time as a whole bunch of teens ignore the warnings of every other film that's ever come before this and are slaughtered. Yeah. Um, This film was shooting less than four months after the release of the first film. I was just looking. It's out less than 12 months. It's released after the first one. That's incredible. Because, because within months of the first one being in theaters, and remember, movies stayed in theaters a hell of a lot longer back then, especially when they made $60 million on a $500,000 budget. They just kept them in theaters until the prints fell apart. Within four months of this film being released, 
they're shooting this movie and almost done with production. It's insane. Amazing. Um, the I got to touch on this because it is a controversy. The sex crazed couple skewer that happens is a, a recreation of the exact same kill in Mario Bava's twitch of the death nerve, which we know as a bay of blood. Oh, it's, okay. It, Did not know it that. It is shot for shot, moment for moment, the entire gag. Everything about it is 100% ripped off from A Bay of Blood. In fact, much of this movie is ripped off from, or really the whole franchise is ripped off from A Bay of Blood because even though it's not about a summer camp, it is about murder in the woods on February the 13th and includes a machete-wielding shack maniac. (laughs) And to to touch on this, Paul, we may dive deeper into this in some and. Un, unknown time mm. and place. Mm. But the Italian Italian Giallo film is really the daddy of the American slasher. Yes. Yep. And 70s, they were throughout the 70s and early, yeah. late 60s even. Yeah. Yes. They were more moody. They were definitely more dramatic. They were definitely more fetishistic, way yep. more sexually and, and violently graphic than the slashers we got. And they were completely nihilistic. And A Bay of Blood is a deeply nihilistic film, which I would recommend, actually. Uh, okay. Just hang with up. it. It's Italian, so it's fucking weird, but hang with it till the end. <laughs> Shout out to speaking, all your Italian listeners. <laughs> speaking of nihilistic, the opening of this movie is deeply nihilistic. The first film was so popular that the f- actress who played Alice had a real-life stalker. Oh, Adrian King. Is that her name? I think so, yes. Wow. They open this movie with the idea of she feels basically a stalker breaking into her apartment and killing her because they wanted to prey upon the very real fears because her stalker actually ended up pretending that he was a friend of hers, became a friend of hers, and became the person that she relied on to talk to about this stalker. What? And the person that she was like, t- like, like relying on emotionally to get through this stalker was oh her God. stock, the stalker himself. So he was like in her house and he actually like attacked and her knew- gun head in her apartment. Oh my God. It, it was insane. They knew all of this. This is before this the second one. So it all within the first year of the film's release. Okay. Yes. Because of the popularity of the first film, they knew all of this. And then they didn't even they bother writing a script. It. They didn't even bother writing a script. They created the scenario. They had her all of her dialogue in the opening. And all of her behavior is completely improv because they just wanted her to draw on her real trauma. <laughs> you know what? I had such a contrasting experience of this. Well, uh, reaction to this opening of the film. I think it's yeah. really well put together. So yes, that it is. kind of steady cam gliding through the hallways of the house yeah. and not showing you certain corners where yeah. it turns out Jason might be lurking and, yeah, the, the faux scares, and then you know she ends up getting killed and, and and the like. I thought that was all well done, but it's couched in this recap of the events of the last film. We keep flashing back to it was like, like a dream, her dreaming about the first film. Yes, like what the fuck? The film was out one year ago. You can't remember <laughs> what, why are we? This film's like eighty five minutes long, and we spend like six or seven minutes on that shit. Like how okay, people, you're how short are people's attention spans. You're 100% right, but you also have to remember this because it's so close. Most people have not seen it since they saw it a year ago. Because even One though VCRs because <laughs> even though VCRs are around Paul, 
there, the, most people did not see this on home video in 1981 because most people in the U.S. did not have access to a VCR yet. Or if they did, yeah. they, they, they would have had to buy this movie for $100. Video stores, the mom and pop video store is just beginning to take off nationwide. And like by 83. Surely you remember a film less than a year ago you saw what happened at the end of it. I would... I would think so, but it's again, it's not played on television. I, I my yeah. assumption is they put it in, assuming because the first one was so successful, more people were going to turn out for the second one who maybe hadn't ever seen the first one. Right, because once it was out of theaters, there was no they way don't they don't do see six it. minutes. Do it previously correct. on Friday the thirteenth, and do Cor- thirty seconds worth. Bam. Well, th- that's a trend in all, almost all of these movies. Previously know, on Friday the thirteenth, all suck. No, there's one that's actually pretty good. There's one that's good. Um, there's actually two that two that are good. I think um, they all do go on too long, though. You're right. Um, the one thing I did you pick up on that James Cameron took the shot of Jason crossing the street in the dark and the rain and used it, but just did it in daylight when the T800 in the first Terminator crosses the street to go to that first no, Connor's house. I did not. That yeah. is the longest bow I think I've ever heard drawn on any podcast anywhere. Wow. I Because here's the thing. The first Terminator is 100% a slasher movie. Yes. It's it's a techno-war slasher film. It's a horror film. Yeah. Sci-fi horror film. Yep. The Terminator theme, the Brad Fidel Terminator theme, is not that dissimilar to the Halloween theme if you listen to them side by side. Right. And Jeez. there are, Arnold is presented as Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees. And eventually Jason would be more like the Terminator than yeah. the Terminator. <laughs> but um, so I, he borrowed that. And I think that what Cameron does so beautifully is he took a shot that you would normally see in a dark and rainy night and he put it in broad daylight, which makes it actually scarier. It's not a dark and stormy night where this, this killer is going to come and, just creep into your house. He doesn't creep into your house. He knocks on the door. He asks for you by name and he blows you the fuck away. That is scarier than the guy lurking in the shadows. In my opinion, um, yep. I hear where you come from. Now let's talk about the beef scale here. It's time to rate some beef, Paul. 100% us at grade beef. Let's start with Paul, who is uh, your namesake. I believe you're named after him. He is our blonde <laughs> leader type. Uh, where would you rate him uh, uh, as far as a beef scale? On one to ten beefs, how many beefs is Paul, uh, blonde leader, a.k.a. bland good guy? Galaki's a pretty hot hot dude. Has some questionable interactions with with uh, Ginny. Is that how you say it? Ginny. Yep, uh, Ginny. Ginny, early on in the film where it made me think, geez, this guy's a complete asshole. But uh, maybe yes. that's why she's into him. He's hot and he's an asshole. He's so kind of I, an asshole, but he's also kind of sarcastic because she's kind of an asshole back to him. So I actually like Paul a lot. I think he's one of our better bland guys. So between personality and looks and the jawline, I'm going to give him 8.5 out of 10 beefs. I'm going to say the he's in that. down to me. Seven, seven, seven. And okay. Half. Okay. Uh, what about Scott, who's our blue-eyed ding-dong daddy? I don't even remember Scott. They've all melded together, everyone else, other than the last dude. So I'm going to have to try and find a picture of him. <laughs> are you saying that these characters are are indiscernible from each other? Yes. <laughs> what about their hogs? Are their hogs indiscernible, Paul? <laughs> yes. You're a man of discerning hog taste. <laughs> 
Sure, I am. Hang on, I'm gonna have to. No, I'm gonna have to type it in. Can't even. Even the actor doesn't get a picture on Wikipedia. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, he's a good looking bloke. Yeah. Okay, out of ten, he's our blue eyed ding dong daddy. What do you give him out of ten? Yeah, eight and a half. He's, he's a bit okay. All right, I'm gonna go with you, eight and a half. What about Ted, who's the long neck geek? You know, if you need to look up this guy, he's the guy that gets shit faced at the bar and never goes back to the camp and actually accidentally survives the film. Oh, which is my big complaint about this bloody movie, I tell you. Well, we'll get to yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> Looks like a maybe a low three, key hawk. Three, three huh? out of ten. Three out of ten. I thought you were gonna say point three out of ten. I'm gonna put him in the I'm gonna put him in the one category. I think it's yeah, uh, everybody enough. knows the rules. I'm gonna give him a one out of ten. Uh what about Mark? Otherwise you gotta know who Mark is here. Do you know who Mark is, Paul? It's wheelchair Willie. Oh, no, he was a good looking bloke. Oh, yeah. Great looking guy. Right? Yep. I think he's the hottest of all of them. I'm going to give him a 9 out of 10, I think, on the beef scale. Yep. Yeah, can't argue with that. Yeah. Now, I I like sometimes to think about these characters, what would have happened to them had they lived. And for Mark in particular, had he lived, I think he would have regained his lower motor functions because he keeps saying that he's training. He can't have sex. He can't do this. He can't do that because he's training. And eventually, the, one of the female characters goes, training for what? And he has, he goes, I don't know. He has no answer. <laughs> and so I think he would have kept training, regained his lower motor functions, would have gone on to become an inspirational speaker. But by now, he would have taken a hard turn into being a right-wing podcaster. He'd appear on <laughs> such shows as Joe Rogan, and his po- podcast would be called Bootstraps because he would have literally picked himself up by his bootstraps it would have gone from crippled to conservative on the matter of about 30 years i love how much that uh, a good proportion of this review is going to be taken up by that story but that's that's right <laughs> which goes to show how much we've got to talk about <laughs> but i think this film would what have been even dig. more progressive what a dig. <laughs> well the film's not very good let's be honest uh, well though apparently you've got one higher than i've got friday the 13th which is amazing yeah this film this film would have been better had he somehow, had they implied he's in a wheelchair and yeah, it's got some huge debilitating uh, condition or disability, whatever it is. But I think he was in a, a car chance, accident or something, right? Or a motorcycle Well, accident. there's a chance he could, he's starting to feel his feet move again or whatever. And somehow <laughs> at the That's end terrible. of the film, at the end of the film, he stood up oh to Jason and saved. Oh my God. Like, you can see where I'm going. It's a great idea. I think it's really good to have something progressive, someone who's got a disability is, in the film. I don't think I'll do much with him. That's one of the worst ideas I've ever heard you offer ever. <laughs> that he's progressively feeling moving his toes at the movie. At the end, he miraculously rises from his wheelchair yep. and gets stabbed and dies. I can walk. <laughs> <laughs> could have been homage. Could have been. <laughs> And he still but gets the fucking machete in the head. He still dies. That's still dies. how it would have happened. As soon as yep. he miraculously rises from yep. a wheelchair, thump into the, into the fucking yep. head. <laughs> Buying her just enough time to get away so then she could become the final girl. What so would have been even better? His, his death is the best. Yes, of course. What would have yep. been even better, Paul, is if just as he started to rise from his wheelchair, Jason comes along with the machete and cleaves both of his legs out from underneath <laughs> So he's still crippled. He's still disabled. He's stupid. Let's just get, yeah, let's go, let's go all, all the way. way. Yeah. Um, the sex crazed couple here are Jeff and Sandra. 
Despite the male gaze on Sandra, we never actually see her upper privates. And the rumor as to why we never see any nip slips is that she maybe lied about her age. It was an actual teenager. Oh, wow. Not of legal status. So we get a lot of cleavage from her. We get a lot of staring at the chest, but we don't get any nudity even during the sex scene from her. And I believe it was cut because of that. And also the death scene was, uh, I think it was given an X rating in its original cut. Because of how graphic it was. Here's where I'm going to disagree. They, get, they with both you. get stabbed. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. They're the ones that get the spear through the uh, his yep. back. The only difference in a bay of blood is it's the girls on top, and because they're Italians and it's weird when she's squirming with the uh, uh, the spear through both of them, it happens almost as if she's climaxing sexually. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It, it's and it goes on for a while. Here's where I'm going to disagree with you, Paul. I think Stephen Miner is such a better, better director than Cunningham. Yeah. Um, I I think that Cunningham he has all of the directorial prowess of like a like a, a industrial filmmaker, somebody who's we used to have, in the states we used to call them industrials. Um, you guys used to have them too. The guy who directed uh, Dead End Drive In used to. Do you know Dead End no Drive In, the Australian exploitation no. movie about a drive in where? where kids who are on the dole get sent to this drive-in to live off of government welfare, eighties punk kid. You've never heard of this. It's, it's, nah. it's Blow my mind. The stunts were done by the same people who worked with George Miller on, um, the early Mad Max films. Mad Max's okay. They're car stunts and there are insane car stunts in it. It's not as okay. good as Mad Max. You should check it out. Yep. He used to do industrials for you guys. He did one about, smoking in Australian hospitals and it turns into a full blown gore fest. They used to show it to people to warn them in Australia not to smoke in hospitals. Okay. I have seen, I can't believe I've seen this shit and you have it. I'm not even from I around there. I know. Wow. How did, you're a man of the world, Jason. Quite clearly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Cunningham is like that. He's a guy that's like shooting like hygiene films. He has no sensibility, no style, nothing. Minor definitely does, especially for a guy who was like 22 when he made this movie. I, oh, one wow. of the things I love that he does in this film is he plays with the POV shot because at, by this point, he knows that we expect the point of view to always be the killer. He puts in POV shots that aren't actually the killer. Yep, it's actually yep. just the camera. And then sometimes when you think it's just the camera, oh, it turns out to actually be Jason. So that it gets a little meta where he starts fucking around with our knowledge mm-hmm. of what we're already beginning to learn about slasher films. The DP on this is Peter Stein. And I think he's got some impressive camera work. He, I, he's, a, he's got some gliding. Like you were talking about those gliding steady cam shots are incredible. Uh, when Jenny's like going through a cabin at night in the dark and he's following her and the camera staying in focus, it's incredible. It's on no, I swear to you, it's really good work. It's good work. That scene where Paul's telling the story of Jason, which, by the way, is why he didn't need six fucking minutes at the start of the film Correct. dedicated to yes. the backstory. That's, and then the Paul really, scene is a good scene. Yeah, a really great uh, dolly camera up sort of yes. around them all listening to him and up close to him. That's a really great shot as well. So, yeah, yeah, it's absolutely glossier. It looks better, the film. No question at all. The script is dog shit. The well, let me say one more good thing about it. Let me say one more good thing about it before you trash it. <laughs> my favorite scene in maybe the first five films one happens here and it's when they get back into one of the cabins and it's dark 
and the camera is panning around the room and Jenny goes, Paul, there's somebody in here. And she goes, Paul, there's some, and Paul's looking around. She goes, Paul, there's somebody in here. Paul, there's somebody in here. And out of fucking nowhere, J- uh, Jason comes up out of the shadow in the, in the corner and attacks him. I think that is, I rewound it because I thought it was so wow. effective. The camera work, everything about it. As I'm watching this in like 4K quality HD and you cannot see him. They have obscured him so far, uncut into the shadows. And just the idea of she walks into the room and she just feels she it. like there's somebody mm. in there. And we've all had that feeling. And, and obviously there's usually nobody in the room with you. But it gave me, even talking about it, it gives me fucking goosebumps. I thought it was so well done. I really liked it. Okay, now trash this movie. <laughs> Look, I think everything you said, my note here is this film looks so much better. Like, and yes. I noted that shot that I just mentioned and also the, the steady cam shots are early in the film. So, yes, the lighting, it's all better. It looks like a, a proper film, this one. And you can tell that they spent, you know, double the money on it at that level too. So, whether yeah. they're using a different film stock or whatever it is, it, it all works in that regard. So, technically, I'm behind it. Yes, there's still the cutaways. You've explained it to me now. So, they all had to be cut to get down to this R rating or NC-17 yeah. rating, whatever it, was, whatever it was called. The... Biggest problem for me though is just we're just it's the same film as you say with the same cardboard cutout characters mm-hmm. a little bit more between the the lead guy lead girl and lead guy in terms of that, like say that back and forth between them she's given as good as she gets so she's not quite a blank slate that works well, Paul they they actually characters have a scene outside of the camp in the town at a bar just talking about her going okay which we gotta get to what she says <laughs> right. But, she, but, but why would you set up 20 characters and put half of them in a bar and they never come back? What madness is this? <laughs> I I I I I kind of like the idea that everybody doesn't oh. die. But but the, why bother? What what what's the rationale behind so we get a little bit of their relationship story and then back she goes? There's easier ways to do this. This film spins its wheels for so long on pointless shit that when we finally get to the, the stuff, it's rushed. The kills are done. Oh, we're down to the final girl and Paul. Ginny and Paul, that's oh, what? The, it's a terribly paced film. It's terribly constructed and the script is awful. And that's why it doesn't get as high as the first one for me. Clearly, it goes higher for you. Well, the script was obviously clearly rushed because they were shooting it four months after the first one was released in theaters. And, yeah. and they didn't start writing it until like the early uh, uh, numbers started to come in. So it was obviously written hastily. I think with the strength of this movie is the direction, the cinematography is exceptionally well done. I, 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 I do agree. The kills are pretty bloodless. I, um, I think Jenny is a good character. I think she's one of the closest to an actual person yep. that we get in any of these movies. She actually seems like a real human being for a change. Even in some of the later movies, like, like I think she's she's I just get into it I think this movie has the best kill maybe one of the best kills of the entire series which is the hatchet to the guy's dome and it's cruel and a lot of people think it's like ableist and whatever yes yes but the hatchet effect looks good in his head it's seamless then they took a real guy was a stunt performer not the actor and they put him down a real wheelchair down real (laughs) steep stairs in in rain (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is dangerous as hell. <laughs> a set of steep stairs we we never seen any other Friday the 13th film ever, but yeah, just for that well, purpose. Well, 
none of these camps are, they're never shot the same place. There's no continuity between what camp Crystal Lake is. Also, by the way, this isn't the camp, Paul. They make, that's another thing I like about it. This is not Camp Crystal Lake. Oh, this across is the way. Yeah. across the way. And they're like, you shouldn't even be opening this, this camp. They shouldn't, because it's what, it, th- for those that haven't seen this film or don't remember it, this time it's not about a camp or even camp counselors. It's about counselors in training, which are yep. known in the States as CITs, which I was a CIT, then eventually camp oh, counselor. Yeah. yeah. And essentially this guy's opened a facility where it's before the summer season, it's like early spring, come get all your certifications, get your training, and then you'll be certified to be a camp counselor wherever the fuck you want to go. And it is across the way from, and it's five years after the last massacre uh, at Camp Crystal Lake. It doesn't make any sense that Jason is alive. It doesn't make any sense that he saw his mother's beheading. Yeah, it doesn't yep. make any sense. Well, it makes sense he's an adult because 35 oh, yeah, years old. Yeah. Yeah. But 20, the question 20, yeah, is 20, did he never reveal himself to his mother in 35 years? Because she's convinced he's dead. <laughs> yeah. You just have to just have to go and roll with it because it does not work. Cunningham and all the group behind this movie have all on Polar Records say it doesn't make any sense. We we just we needed the the movie was the first movie was so successful, but we couldn't bring the killer back because she was dead. So we had to find another killer. And it was like, why not Jason? Right? Because we had the jump scare. What if he was alive? And that was it. It was just, we got to make it a paramount once is ordering another one of these. They're all going to give us a bunch of fucking money. Let's just slap something together and put it out there. I think under those pretenses, it's a better movie than it has any right to be. Um, So let's get into it. You are in agreement with me that the best kill of this film is the hatchet to the head in the wheelchair, right? Yep. 100%. Is this the best Jason? No. This Jason I think sucks. the potato sack Jason is fucking yeah. terrible. Yep, 100% agree. He doesn't have... I don't, can't remember which actor is playing Jason at this particular point. There's two. There's Gillette. a stunt... Perf- well, there's two. Because oh, the, yep. the, the main guy who was supposed to do it quit uh, or was fired, and then the st- a stunt guy took his place. Doesn't seem to have any physical presence to me. Doesn't no. seem to be intimidating. Just looks silly with the bag on his head. So this is arguably the worst I looks, Jason. Yeah, I think he looks mm, even second sillier. Worst, second the, worst, maybe. I think he looks sillier with the bag off of his head. He looks ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. Terrible all around. And, and again, detracted from the film for me. So is Ginny yeah. the best final girl? At least of these first five. Yes, but. I have a qualifier when we get to the best of the Friday the 13th. Okay. I'll hear. I'll, I will listen to you then. Cause I, th- I think I know who you're going to go with. And I can't yep. necessarily disagree. Um, if you had to give this one a score out of 10, what would you give it? And it obviously is ranked lower than number two. Yeah. So. This is my third best of the week. So we just sort of, I assume flipped around the other way. I'll give this a four and a half out of 10. Did not enjoy this film much at all. I like this movie so much better than the first movie. I liked everything about wow. it, but what knocked it down for me was the ending. The very, very ending absolutely oh, feels justice rushed. for Paul. Hashtag justice for Paul. Paul disappears, and you're like, <laughs> we didn't find any Paul, ma'am. And there's never an explanation. We don't know if he's dead. We don't know if he disappeared. Nothing. I did a bit of yeah. digging. I did a bit of digging because okay. it annoyed me so much, and again, probably contributes to my to my fault. My <laughs> yes. Paul did die, but it makes no sense then how Ginny lived. 
So yes. apparently uh, the actress said that if she came back for the third, she was going to find Paul's head in a washing machine at a local laundromat. But she didn't come back for the third, so they went in a completely yes. different direction. Uh, and then there's also footage of uh, like a, a shot of him on some deleted scene, like a, a lift from it on one of the DVD inserts or Blu-ray inserts over the years where you can clearly see him with blood streaming down his face and he's dead. So he was meant to die, but for whatever reason, they cut it out. And so his fate remains uncertain. Although I think in the next film, there's a radio report which gives a number of deaths which would have included Paul. So, yeah. Continuity be damned in these films. Uh, <laughs> um, what was your score in this one then? If it's your number four three, and a half, four and a half four out of ten. Yeah, for me this is a six point seven five out of ten. It would have Ooh. been even higher, but the ending really killed it for me. It is my number two of the week. I, I just I got to the ending. I was like, what the heck is that? It just ends. The movie literally just yep. stops because I ran out of bloody time because I spent all this time spinning yeah. the wheels on other shit. Yes. It's like, oh hey, oh, we're almost at an hour and a half. End. Stupid. If Paul was pissed about that one, I don't know what he <laughs> thinks about this one. Of course, we're talking about Stephen Miner's follow-up, which take everything I said about cinematography, direction, throw it out the fucking window. Because <laughs> we got Friday the 13th 3, 3D, which came out in 1982 and currently has a whopping 7% on Rotten Tomatoes. On Friday, August 13th, an all-new three-dimensional process will put you in the picture, whether you want to be there or not. Friday the 13th, Part 3 in Super 3D. Join Jason in the woods on his day, if you dare. Friday the 13th, Part 3 in Super 3D. Rated R. Friday the 13th, Part 3 opens Friday the 13th at selected theaters and drive-ins. Film was directed by Stephen Miner. It was written by Martin Kitkosser. It was released August 13th, 1982. One of the few films actually released on a 13th. On a budget of $2.2 million, it made $36.7 million. Made more. Frightened troglodyte forgoes camp to kill unlikable randos. In in Jason finds a mask in 3D. That's all that matters. It's not all that matters, Paul, because this film has maybe the best tune in all of these films. It's the Friday the 13th Harry Manfredini score, disco style. That's right, (laughs) folks. Fire it up, and we can have ourselves a five-second dance party in five, four, three, two, one, go. Yeah! Dance, Paul. Dance. (laughs) Woo! My, my literal note here is, what the fuck is with this opening title's music? It's like funky disco shit. It's the disco version of the Friday the theme. What, what are you trying to set up here? You're clearly saying we give zero fucks at that particular point. I think it's one of the best parts of this movie, and I'm not being facetious. I love the... I've used it before in the podcast. I love that version <laughs> of, of the theme. I think it's fantastic. Amy Steele, like you said, who played Jenny in the other film, declined the film, which she regrets to this day. She thought she was going to move on to bigger, better things. She did not. Mm-hmm. Um, the, they gave her essentially two pitches. Pitch number one is that she would be a traumatized woman trying to build her life back when Jason attacks her in either a college setting or a mental institution. 
And um, she just didn't really want to make that movie. And so when she didn't come back, they had to scrap all of it. And Stephen Miner was and the producers of the film who may or may not have been associated with some certain business types in the New York, New Jersey, tri-state area. <laughs> um, they really liked the idea of the 50, 50s B movies in 3D. And there was this micro 3D resurgence, all of which mm. happened in 1982, at least stateside. And they were like, okay, this movie kind of needs a gimmick. What if we did the old school monster movie thing and we did in 3D? Conceptually, though, I understand where Miner was coming from. What he wanted to do, he's like, these movies are like thrills, right? There, you, you go to them like you go to a roller coaster. You want to experience the ride. You, you're going because you want to be scared or grossed yep. out or titillated in some way. And he was like, the idea was the kills. What if we could get Jason and the kills leaping off the screen? So that you felt like you're in the movie and the movie's in the theater with you. Conceptually, I actually like that idea. I think the slasher genre conceptually of like somebody wielding a knife towards you in 3D could work. The problem is 3D has and always will fucking suck. And it especially <laughs> sucked back then version. Yep. when you had to wear the fucking glasses, the blue and the red glasses. Mm -hmm. And it all depended upon whether your projectionist knew how to properly focus a 3d film in which most cases, most teenagers in the United States had no idea. Some of the biggest complaints about this movie is that the 3d was terrible and it didn't work. And the entire movie was blurry and gave people headaches that aside casting aside. Cause this came out the same year as jaws three, 3d cast that aside watching the movie, even on cable in the USA network in the late eighties as a kid, this is the one we laughed at because the, the yo-yo gags, oh, the gosh. lady doing laundry and sticking a fucking broom yep. mop handle out in the thing. Even the guy sticking the eyeball, the, when the eyeball does come out, cause the guy gets harpooned in the head or whatever. And you can clearly see that it's like a rod behind the eyeball. It, this was so shoddily piss poorly done. That even if the 3D had been effective, you still would have saw literally all of the strings. It fucking sucks. This movie fucking sucks. It is awful. <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> I think you hated this one even more than me. I, I, this, it's terrible. Everything you said is a hundred percent true. I think the the final girl, she's coming back after being attacked by a deformed man two years before. We meant to believe that's Jason. How does this yes. get into continuity? What's going on? This is okay. bizarre. Let me ask you let me ask you this question. Are Chris's parents complicit with Jason? And did they lead her into the woods to be killed by him? Because the story she tells would lead you to believe that her parents specifically let her just stay all night out in the fucking woods. Yeah. in the hopes that Jason would kill her. And then when he decided not to, they reluctantly brought her home and then never talked about it. It feels like a botched child murder attempt. It feels like they <laughs> took this girl into the woods specifically for her to be hatcheted. Jason was like, I don't really kill kids. I kill horny teenagers or 40 year olds pretending to be teenagers. And, mm -hmm. um, and they were like, oh, fuck, we try to get that, we try to get that troglodyte mountain man to kill <laughs> our little girl and maybe eat her, and he wouldn't do it. We're fucked. 
Yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's so bizarre. Everything about this film is bizarre or just bad, just flat yes. out bad. It's it is a, a if the second film is a photocopy of the first film, but somehow resed up in terms of how that photocopy is presented. Yeah. This film is a photocopy of uh, three other photocopies down the line. It is such a pale imitation of yes. the same thing over and over. And as you say, it's bizarre that it's the same director because this film looks garbage. It is yes. garbage. The plot is nonsensical. The The kills are terrible. Most of them are off screen. It's like, yes. What the fuck oh, are we yeah. even doing? Yeah, you get that <laughs> spear, spear gun yeah. through the eye, which is only because of the 3D gag does it even make it on screen. I guess that's yes. the best kill. They're all garbage. This film is lame as fuck and it sucks. The only notable thing is because of Shelly, you know, the nerdy, pathetic prankster guy. There we go. He's a mashup of the prankster and the yep. pathetic nerd who is in love with the bitch. Yes. Yep. Who's in? And not even, to be fair, the bitch is set up with him and doesn't like it. Fair enough. I wouldn't like to be set up with Shelly either. So, well, you know what? I guess, I, I, you're right. I guess she, that character really isn't a bitch. He really is an asshole, though. He's an asshole. Oh, my God. It, yeah. And it doesn't even pay off. They, the film doesn't even have the good grace to show him being destroyed dismembered by jason no he just it happens off screen they find his body and i'm like what the fuck but he yeah, does have the annoying. hockey mask and jason does get the mask and we're set up now for the rest of jason's iconic appearance for well all the way through to 2012 whatever the year was of the last friday 13th movie so okay so th- part, this is th- i'll give it a small tick for i gave it the same small tick but what's so fucking strange about this series is is at th- at this point even he's just now getting the hockey mask right he's not in the first one he's only shows up in the second one he just gets the hockey mask in the third one he's going to be killed in the fourth one he's not in the fifth one <laughs> oh. and when you think about it this by this point in the series history it has no identity jason Ooh. is just now getting the mask but he's not even fully established as the Jason most of us think of until part six, part six. Could you imagine Luke Skywalker not knowing how to use the force and the force not even being introduced to the third film? And he doesn't get a lightsaber till the sixth film. Could you imagine Rocky not boxing until Rocky six? Like, I think what Jason were they is there do- at part four. He's there in part four, but then he, as you say, gets killed. So we'll come to that in, in a few minutes. I, 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 well, we'll get to, to say about this film. Well, no, we'll get to it in our. De- well, I'm going to set up a debate for the when we we do the second half of the series in our next episode, because I I I I understand part four, but I disagree. I don't think that when people think of Jason Voorhees, they think of Ted no, White six, or whatever. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, they yeah. they think Kane of Zombie Hunter. Jason, and we'll debate yeah. that uh, in our next episode. Um. I just, I, what's, what's clear to me though, regardless is that by part three, nobody knows what they're doing with this series. Nobody knows yep. what they're doing with these movies. They fell ass backwards into a mountain of cash and yep. have no idea how to replicate it. Or like they're just trying to do the same movie over again, but like it's not working. It's just, this movie fucking blows. Um, I will say that we here we get the sex crazed couple, which is this time Debbie, who is pregnant, and Andy. Um, has anybody ever reckoned with the fact that when Jason kills Debbie in the hammock, 
he is also subsequently aborting her fetus. He's an equal opportunity killer. He has tended to avoid, even in the latter films, he, he avoids killing kids. So I guess he didn't. But that's what I'm saying. Kids, he doesn't view an unborn fetus as a child. That's fair. Jason is not pro-life. He he is not pro-life. He doesn't view life beginning at conception, Paul. That's very clear. Because otherwise he wouldn't have killed Debbie. That's true. That is true. So we can, we can guess that the Voorhees clan were not Catholic or evangelical. <laughs> Funny that. <laughs> Loco, the punk with the skull shirt, looks exactly like Scott Thompson from Kids in the Hall. It was very distracting. No kids in the call. You don't know Kids in the Hall? Nah. You don't know Dead End Driving. You don't know Kids in the don't Hall. Don't know Kids in the Hall. What the fuck do you know, Paul? I know this film is shit. That's what I know. <laughs> do you know what the best kill in this film is? <sighs> Look at the only one that sticks out is the crappy one you described where the eye comes out through the... Because no. everything else is off screen. No, the best kill in this movie is the handstand hatchet walk where uh, the, yeah. the guy is walking on his hands because it's the only creative kill because they have him walk over a pane of glass or plastic and the yeah, camera is true. underneath him as if you're looking up through the floor. Then Jason appears, he looks up, Jason, and then just cleaves That's him good. right down yep. uh, the, the, the schnauz. And... Um, I think, is this the best Jason? No, but I will say that the hockey mask does make a difference. It starts to come together here. It's better than the last Jason, that's for sure. Yes. But that's where I'd rank it anyway. So, yeah, terrible film. Is Chris the best final girl, Paul? (laughs) No. And I'll tell you what, she's also has the worst fucking boyfriend of them all. Oh, my God. Rick is a piece of shit. He's pressuring her for sex from moment one. He is not listening to her fact that she's traumatized and putting herself through it, coming back to this place. All he wants to do is get his end wet. He is a complete wanker. Had Rick lived, he would have gone on to become a U.S. (laughs) Supreme Court judge. (laughs) Yes. Rick is. Yeah. (laughs) Rick is the worst. Uh, I give this one a two out of 10, and it is my worst of the week. I think Chris is the worst final girl, maybe of the series. I fucking hated her. I found her annoying. I hated every character in this movie. They clearly had no ideas. The biker stuff is stupid. They have these three fucking rando characters just because they need more of a body count. It's just the whole thing sucks. This movie stinks. I hated it. Well, I don't disagree with anything you said. I gave it slightly more props, obviously a slightly bigger tick. I'm going 2.8 out of 10, but it is my fourth of the week. It's not my worst. (laughs) Jason looks physically pained at this point in time. (laughs) I can't fucking believe that. I mean, there is one that's at least more obnoxious than this, and and we're getting there. But fuck all, man. This, okay. This is terrible. Let's not split hairs. It's terrible. Don't ever watch it. You're going one out of two out of ten. I'm going two point eight. It's hardly a big endorsement. All right, moving along to a fan favorite, maybe the most beloved of the entire series. We're talking about Friday the Thirteenth Part Four, the final chapter, which came out in 1984 and currently has, I cannot believe this, only a 22 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Boo. Jason is back three times before. Sorry to change your mind. You have felt the terror, known the madness, lived the horror. But this is the one you've been screaming for. Because Friday, April 13th, 
will be Jason's unlucky day. Friday the 13th, the final chapter, rated R. Now showing at a theater near you. This film was directed by Joseph Zito, a name you might know from a previous installment of Binge Movies when we talked about Invasion USA in our uh, Canon Films uh, uh, episode. And he also directed a kind of underrated slasher movie called The Prowler, which I think is actually pretty good. Actually, is, Prowler's better than that most, was- of the, most of yep. these. That's good. <laughs> Red Scorpion. Don't forget Red Scorpion. Oh, yes. He did do Red Scorpion as well. That's right. Um, it's a screenplay by Barry Cohen. It is a story by Bruce Hedimi Sakan. It is the triumph return of Crispin Glover, not seen since the days of Back to the Future and Charlie's wow. Angels full throttle. It's the triumph return of Corey Feldman, last seen in Lost Boys. This was released April 13th, 1984, on a budget of $2.6 million and made $33 million. Wow. <laughs> um, I don't really have a synopsis for this because it it is the same as everything else we've ever seen the difference being that there's a family next door like kids rent a cabin in the woods for the weekend and a, and a family lives next door jason stalks and kills them like that's there. there's not in revisiting this movie which i mentally held in high regard i will say this i didn't remember how threadbare it actually kind of is well, I hear where you're coming from, but I think it adds just enough new elements to feel a little bit more real. Absolutely, the wrong word. A little bit more together than the other films. So we get we get the yes. family, like you say, and we get yes. Tommy Jarvis, and who's yes. not a big thing in the film. Like this is where I came with my qualifier on the final girl because it's the final girl herself's not that great, but you add her little brother into it. Yeah, I think we have the best combo of the series to this far anyway at least these first five films for sure so what what i realized yeah. watching this movie is that all these movies are the same but what makes a difference between them is how either how well we like the cast how much we don't like them and want to see them be murdered or yep. how inventive the kills are and there of the are. movies this has it's the most inventive and i think we like the jarvis family and they do feel a real is a stretch. They do feel more like at least movie people. So I will say this. Why is this called the final chapter, Paul? Because maybe they lit- literally meant to kill him off at this point in time and have him really be dead. I think their intention was good, but it made too much money. That's the thing. Paramount so desperately by this point was they were being solid in the trade papers. They were being, they were being lampooned by critics they were being, I mean, it was, it was, this was a blight to them, right? It was essentially dirty money where it's like, these things keep making a lot of money. <laughs> Just give but, it to me. I'll take it if you don't want your dirty money. <laughs> but we're losing the prestige of the Paramount name. We're tarnishing our legacy. It's not worth it. Right. But here's the hypocrisy of that, Paul. In 1968, it's almost tw- you know, 15 years previous to this, 16, 15, mm-hmm. 14 years previous. Paramount formed a company called Film Distribution Corp that was meant solely to distribute provocative films. Oh, okay. And one of those films was a movie called Sin with a Stranger, which was one of the first films in the United States to get an X rating. So at this point, you had G, PG, R, NC-17, X, and triple X. 
an X triple X is just hardcore pornography. An X could yep. not be screened except for in like mid like midnight movie theaters or porno theaters. Right. And even NC seventeen film uh conventional movie theaters would re- basically refuse to screen NC seventeen films, which is why there's so few of them. Which is why they kept cutting them down. So every time they got an X rating, they'd cut it down to try to get an R. Yes. Which is why we don't see any blood. So for Paramount Pictures to create a subsidiary in 1968 to release basically X-rated movies, but then in 1984 to be like, we're we're Paramount, we're too prestigious, mm. we got to get out of the Jason <laughs> business. It makes it's so hypocritical. It's such hypocrisy. They had no problem whatsoever cashing the checks for these movies. But then no, they had to make such a big deal about, oh, well, you're right. This is so dirty. We're just, we're going to kill Jason off. It's going to be the last of it. But what's so cynical about this movie is, and we're skipping ahead, but, oh, we're going to kill Jason off, blah, blah, blah. But they killed Jason off only to set up Tommy Jarvis as the potential killer for the next movie. So you weren't going to yeah. get rid of the franchise. You were just going to be Friday the 13th, Tommy Jarvis. That we're a new beginning, the very one we're next getting to. Uh, right. So yeah. it just, it, it, none of this makes any sense to me of like, oh, we got to get out of the Jason business. No, you fucking don't. But somehow they were able to convince people, not just audiences, but original crew members that this is it. This is the end for Jason. We're not making any more of these movies. So they got Tom Savini to return. Thank God. Oh, the gore wow. effects what finally a come back. Yeah. You'll know there's little touches this movie that make it above the line like the axe mark in the title card mask which is the axe that he gets in the head from chris or yep. whoever in the last film which i thought was pretty cool um the opening of this movie is completely ripped off from halloween too now the actual opening opening within the helicopter pulling away and all that sort of shit i found that to be pretty inventive but i'm talking about the axe mark in the uh i'm talking about the hospital scene with uh, axel and nurse bobby um where he's like, holy yep. Jesus, Jiminy Christmas, Jesus Christ. That's We talked about that almost that exact scene with the nurse and the orderly or the EMT or whatever. Uh, no, it was the it was the more guy and the nurse in fucking in the hot tub. If you remember in the Halloween series. From Halloween, yes. Yeah, yeah. It, Halloween 2. And then it's the exact same This guy's even more obnoxious. Thing. Yes. This guy's even more obnoxious and, and an asshole than, than he was in, in Halloween 2. In this one, he's just wears her down. She's not. She's like, get out of it, get out of it. Oh, for fuck's sake! All right, we do still get our archetype characters, though, Paul. We get prankster Ted, we get geek Jimmy, we get slut Sarah, and we get bland good guy Rob. They do try to say here, though, that Rob is yes, Sandra's I like brother. This. I really no, like I- this. They reuse it in the remake. I forgot. Yeah, absolutely. So Jason Padalecki's character is yes. Jason after his sister's yeah. disappearance. Yeah. I'd forgotten that who it was he was talking about, which which character was. So I'm glad to hear it actually was one of the previous girls in, in the other films. It's the pre-teen yeah, who I, couldn't show her boobs on screen. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Thank you. But I yes. really liked that. Here's someone who knows what's going on, who is way ahead of the curve, more than the authorities, and doesn't believe Jason's dead and he's there. Now, it doesn't amount to much. I would have liked it a lot more had he put up a bit yes. more of a fight than just screaming, he's killing me! He's killing he's me! He's killing me! He's killing me! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always laugh at that scene, yes. 
it's a small knock on the film, but the fact that they're trying to create some sort of more direct continuity from between the characters was, I thought, a really positive thing. I, I like that a lot. I like the fact that Tommy's into creatures and whatever else. Th- that's fun. I really like the- Well, you know where that comes from, right? No. Think about his name. What is his name? Tommy Jarvis. What's his first name? Tommy? Who Tom? did the special effects for Savini. the first- Savini, right. yeah, okay. Yes, Who, as right, a kid, yeah. was into monster makeups and okay. building yep. monster masks. So he is a... Slow, but I got there. <laughs> he was a homage to Tom Savini. Okay, right. Another he's way basically that what, He's back. basically what Tom Savini was like as a kid, only in Corey Feldman form. That was the idea of that character, which I think is it's a nice little gesture. Yeah, and it does speak to, I think, from what I hear, Tom Savini is a bit full of himself and, and loves <laughs> himself a whole hell of a lot. So that would have been well, attractive he to didn't write to that. that. He didn't write that in. Somebody else wrote that in. He's just a special. But maybe they said, hey, yeah. come back and we'll make this kid about, like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, I think the, the the frat kids or the the holidaying kids or whatever you want to call them, these are the best defined yes. of yes. any film, yes. arguably, through the whole series, but definitely in this first half. That yes. I think Crispin Glover's Jimmy's going up against the the guy who calls him dead fuck. I think that was great shtick. And <laughs> so the when co- the hot- you gotta check the computer. Computer never lies. It says you're a dead fuck. Am I a Good dead stuff. fuck? Am I a dead fuck? <laughs> and then he hits on hit the, the, yeah. the eventually the uh, hot twin decides to go for him because she gives up on the on yes. the bland sort of guy who's what the fuck is that guy doing? What's his name? I can't even remember. He's, oh, the guy who's constantly stoned watching stud films? Well, no, no, that's the guy who was saying he was a dead fuck, wasn't it? No, the guy who has his girlfriend there, the two oh, twins yes. come, sexed yes. up twin starts dancing with him, and he's all hitting on her as well, and then gets has an attack of the guilt once his girlfriend storms yes. out. Like, you're a great guy, fella. You're a really top bloke. Not even well, he's a, he's a member the of the, this this movie's horny couple because he eventually goes up and they don't they fool around. He like leaves the twin and then goes up and fucks his girlfriend. I think or tries to. Well, he no he he goes out. She goes out in the boat. She and she gets killed by Jason on the side of the boat. Then he goes out to find her and he gets killed trying to find where she went. So they never get they never hook up at least. Oh, that's right, that's that right, that's right. Yeah. I, Paul, I can't keep this shit straight. <laughs> no, no, I know. I'm the same. Yeah, I get it. I get copious it. notes and I can't keep these fucking characters straight. I will say of all of the Friday the 13th movies, okay, there are these Instagram accounts, TikTok accounts, social media accounts that are completely built around early 90s, late 80s nostalgia. I don't know if you've ever seen any of them. And what, so what they'll do is they'll, they'll take a room of their house and they will try to replicate what the ideal teen bedroom would have been in 1980-something, right? So they have the CRTV and the Nintendo and the, or maybe the Super Nintendo or whatever. And they have all the movie posters and they have the games and they have ALF pogs and they have all these toys or whatever. And it's basically just a thing for them to like shoot different photographs in. And they'll even go and collect like old snacks, which I don't know how the fuck they find these or source these. But they'll have old bags of Doritos, which I just don't open them, I guess. Uh, they'll have old, <laughs> the old versions of Pepsi cans and whatnot. And they'll right, dress like it's the fucking 80s and they'll recreate it and then they'll put like, oh, Saturday morning in 1980, whatever, whatever. And they'll have, you know, the real Ghostbusters on this the phenomenon. TV. No. Oh, it's a very popular subgenre of Instagram. Okay. And most of it is so over-idealized 
that no one kid had all of that shit in such a proliferation in one space at one time, right? It just doesn't make yep, any sense. Yep. But this movie, this film series is as close to making me feel what I think those Instagram posts are supposed to make me feel. <laughs> because the USA Network, when they would run their Friday the 13th marathons on Friday the 13th, they would, I don't know if it was just, I didn't get around to them till a little bit later, but the first time I saw these movies, I was spending the night at a friend's house. It was the middle of summer. It was so fucking hot. There were, we didn't have air conditioning. My friend didn't have air conditioning. You know, so the windows are open. There's no breeze. We're fucking sweating. We're sitting there in swim trunks from whatever we did earlier that day, shirtless, you know, eating pizza and eating Doritos and drinking pop and staying up way too fucking late. And it's like <laughs> 1130 at night, which is really, really late when you're like eight years old. And I'm watching a heavily I edited version <laughs> of Friday the 13th, the final chapter, thinking this, these, this movie is great. We've just got done mocking 3D because it was so stupid. We're going to mock the shit out of the next movie. But this one we loved. And I that the feeling I have towards this movie, but with the caveat of as a kid, the only thing in any of the Friday movies that ever scared me, I have no idea why is the scene of the hippie hitchhiker in this movie <laughs> who gets killed. And the kill is just, you see the banana get like squeezed in her hand and the, and that's the death that terrified me as a kid. And I had nightmares for like six months about, about bananas becoming goo in people's hands. What's your relationship to bananas now, Jason? I, I, this is not a joke, Paul. I can only eat them when they're basically green. If they have any bruising on them or any mush, I have to throw them in the garbage or give them to my significant other or a dog. <laughs> All right. So the trauma carries on is what you're saying. Oh, so yeah. Put a pill in it. If it's mush, you put a pill in it, put a little peanut butter on it, give it to your dog for a dog to take his pills, and then you're good to go. I can't do it. <laughs> now I do have a question for you. I know this maybe isn't nostalgia for you like it is for me, but is it erotica for you? Paul, did a you lot of nudity? <laughs> Paul, did you immediately climax when Jason used a harpoon on a guy's groin or was it a delayed climax? <laughs> I did think impressive, sir. And then is that the one? That's the guy. Paul lifts him up and throw, uh, throws yes. him. Yeah. You impressive. did the kills. No, the kills in this film are genuinely impressive. Like I was like, oh, I can see why this one is this is the series favorite. I never yes. used to think it was. I might be swinging around to that, but we'll determine that in the second half of next week. So you had revealed on your own podcast that you are into sounding. <laughs> that is not true. I knew what sounding was, but didn't know the name for it. Whereas Wayne was horrified. He wouldn't believe that it exists, which for Wayne not to believe something sexual exists is, is a very, very, very <laughs> unlikely thing to have happened. So, which means that underneath all your, that, 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 banal face of normalcy you are the greater deviant of the countdown there's every chance you never know yeah you just never know. <laughs> be careful of the quiet ones that's right <laughs> what is the best kill in this movie that's too hard i can't tell you there's so many great kills I, I'm there's only one answer there's no there's only there's only one answer go on it's jason himself yeah i guess you're right Tommy and, Jarvis and, hacking his fucking head. Yes. And then him sliding down the machete. 
is the best that kill is in this movie. Hundred percent, you're right. And also, I want to give full credit to Tommy's not much of a character until that last ten minutes of the film, yeah. where he's smart enough to go, "Hang on, two plus two here. What if I disarm Jason by trying to look like him a bit?" Well, the first character Very ever cool. did that is Jenny, which we skipped over. She finds the shack in the shrine with Mama Voorhees' head. Yes, and she yep. puts the sweater on and goes, "Jason, this is your mother." And that we learn, okay, this this thing, this person has a weakness, and it's his mom, yep. or it's his childhood, or it's his past. You can kind of fuck with his head because he doesn't. He's fucked up, and I Fun like enough. that they they bring it back, like what Ginny mm. did to survive. They bring that yeah, back, but right. they do a, yep. a they do a different spin on it. And you're right; he figures it out of like. You know, remember me, Jason? Like he's reminding him of his childhood self, yeah. his his scared, vulnerable, uh, weak self, and that's enough to throw him off. And gets uh, Tommy close enough to be able to do what he does. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That slide down is amazing. So yeah, hats off. I should have remembered that. The other thing I want to say, which we've not mentioned, is clearly Jason does not like glass because by this film. <laughs> I was re- it was readily apparent to me Jason yes. really fucking hates glass. Every single one of these films at least once if not multiple times either a body or a real person gets th- a live person gets thrown through glass by Jason or oh. if he absolutely does not have a body at hand he'll jump through it himself. It's not just glass. It's glass windows. This yes. fucking guy <laughs> hates windows. If it's a door he might break through it. If it's a door made of mostly windows He's plowing through he's throwing something. Right. In one of these movies, he throws a fucker out the upstairs window. Then later this, in the movie, one. throws the same fucking body in the in. downstairs window. It's, it's, it's this one. <laughs> I laugh so fucking hard. Yep. What does this guy have against fucking it's windows? <laughs> I was losing my shit laughing by this one. Exactly that, that point. Had to be a gag, right? that, that one had to be a gag. Where in, he, yeah. to kill the guy or whoever, he threw them. It was, them it was out one of the, the twins. Up, yep. Yeah, upstairs. Then later in the movie, to get into the kitchen or whatever, or the or the dining room, he throws the same fucking person through the downstairs window. That has to be a joke, right? And it worked. I was it rolling worked. at this point. And oh, by this too. stage, I'm now looking for it. Every every Jason film, I'm, or Friday Thirteenth, I'm looking every for movie when's he throwing someone through glass. Every movie, somebody goes through glass. This is the movie where the dog decides, fuck this, I'm out of here, doesn't get killed, by, but the dog jumps through glass <laughs> to get out of the movie. I, I, right. it's, it, it was hilarious to me. They had to know what they were doing. And you're right. Every single movie, including the one in space, Jason breaks through yep. a glass window. Glass. Yep, he does. Uh, I'm so glad that you noticed that because I was like, what the fuck is this guy's problem with windows? <laughs> as he, as many people as he's killed, he's broken at least as many window panes. Yeah, I reckon that's a, there's a, there's a stat for you. How many windows versus deaths? Jason may have killed 220 people, but he smashed the fuck out of 450 windows. So, uh, all right. It was uh, as far as Jason's go. <laughs> I was choked to my own tongue. <laughs> I'm sorry. I almost died. Okay, right. go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Where does this Jason rank for you then? Of the first five, I think he is the best because yeah, Ted White. I think Ted big, White is intimidating. Yes. And he's distinct too. 
I think Ted White is the first person to make Jason distinct. The way he moves, the way he undulates. There's a physicality to the performance that we haven't seen before. And so Jason doesn't speak. I mean, he eventually does. But for the most part, (laughs) he doesn't speak. And so it's a completely physical performance to convey his personality and his thoughts and his intentions, whatever those other than murder they might be or why he's murdering. And Ted white is the only, like the first person to figure out, like you got to put a little something else on it. So I think of the first five, he's, this is the best Jason that we get. Uh, I, you know, Jason isn't in the next one, so we can't say that. Um, Of the final (laughs) girls, I think Trish is number two. She's not bad, but it definitely is the pairing of yes, Tommy Jarvis and her together right. make a formidable team. And they and honestly, of all of them, other than Ginny, and I, I, I give her a bump because she's like the first final girl that actually like she uses her psychology background to psychologize Jason yep. and yep. figure out what is. And also weird. She's shit faced in that bar. So the entire third act of the movie, Ginny is drunk. So the fact that she survives Jason by being while plastered is commendable. Um, That's true. I I think what's great about the Jarvis siblings is that they actually like once they realize what's actually going on and they're running for their life or whatever, they make like smart decisions. So many times in these movies, the characters are really fucking stupid. Even the main people are really, really stupid. And I don't think that Trish or Tommy, even though Tommy's a little kid, are stupid people. So that makes us like them, I think, a little bit more because they're just, unfortunately, like a family experiencing a hard time just at the in the wrong place at the wrong time and trying to survive. And that makes them instantly more sympathetic than most of these sex-crazed one-dimensional teens that we get. So, I did and wonder, I would, like... You don't- I did wonder though where that. Sorry, tried to interrupt you. My apologies. Why a family would settle out there? It doesn't seem to be close to fucking anything, though. I think they were like a upper middle class family. You're right, I, but I think they're like an upper middle class family. That's their summer home. And oh, maybe okay. Yep. They're going through a divorce, and because dad yeah, left her that. for her a younger girl or whatever. So I think that just that's where they she needs some place to go, and that's the house that she got, or she could stay there, or whatever. You know, it's a divorce situation or separation situation, which you're right. Like, also, uh, none of these movies happen during the summer, and many of them happen very obviously in the fall because all the leaves are off the trees. Right. It's, they're supposed <laughs> to be skinny dipping. And you can every time you see their breath, and every time it's night, everybody's all the characters are like, uh, uh. if it's, it's summer, always raining. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always, always raining, raining as well. Dreary. Yeah, it's always they they very clearly shot all these films off season and it's pretended that it was summertime. It's fucking bizarre. Um, I give this one a seven out of ten, and it is my number one of this episode. It's my number one of the week. I think this movie's actually good, and in fact, it has twenty two percent is bullshit. 100% agree on everything you said. I went even higher. I'm giving this 7.4 out of 10. Best of the week by a long, long way. And absolutely a very good example of a slasher film. Everyone yeah. who likes slasher films will have seen it. And if you haven't, fix it. Yes. Now, to make a connection to our, the last time we did this last Halloween, did you notice that they obviously set up Tommy Jarvis as the future killer of the series? Just like the Halloween series, obviously set up Jamie Lloyd as the future killer of that series, but this film did it in 1984 and Halloween four did it in 1988. Ooh, there you go. 
So now the what is it? The student has become the teacher or the master. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> the original begins to imitate. We talked about this, if you remember, Paul. Where I the Halloween to. series breaks down is oh, from yes, four forward. Yeah, when they bring him, when they bring Michael Myers back. He's basically just Jason, a bat, like a distilled yep. Jason Voorhees. But Jason Voorhees, uh, or it wasn't even in the original one, but the original Friday the Thirteenth is a ripoff of Halloween. And the rest of the decade in the 90s, the Halloween series is chasing the tail of the Friday series. Yep. And yet people love that series more than they love this one, which is I guess my grades on me. Uh, yeah. Anyway, let's uh, let's do this. <laughs> let's rip the bandaid off this last one, Jason, for fuck's sake. This is awful. All right. Let's move on to Friday the 13th, part five from 1985, a.k.a. A New Beginning, which currently has a what, Paul? 18% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Friday at the Lions Avenue and East Sprague Cinemas. This one was directed by John Steinman. It's the quote of the century is from this man. His quote about this film is, quote, I shot a fucking porno in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> it was written by, the, uh, Paul, listen to this. It was written by. Written by. Martin Kittrosser, David Cohen, David Steinman, based on a story by Martin Kittrosser and David Cohen. It took three people to write this movie. Uh, oh they God. got a bottom of the barrel, legitimate porno director to direct this movie. And you can tell um, this movie was released March 22nd, 1985 on a budget of 2.2 million. It only made 22 million, which is still 10 <laughs> times its budget. Yep. <clears throat> Anyone who ate an enchilada will find they aren't alone in the shitter. <laughs> Uh, Jason sucks. It's official because it's not Jason. Oh my God. Twist. Corey Feldman's heavily featured in the marketing of the movie, the trailer of the movie. He does appear in the movie, but he couldn't be in the entirety of it because he was off filming Goonies. Good for him. Good decision. <laughs> the opening of this movie was shot in his backyard, his real life backyard, by the way, though, him watching Jason reappear yep. and all that. That's all in his backyard. They brought the, all that the other shit in and insane. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this movie yeah. was, you know, go ahead. Can go I ahead. say, you know, you're on, you're in real trouble when even the shittily shot dream sequence, which shows Tommy yes. as a, back as Corey Melbourne kid, they dig up Jason and he's been buried with his machete. I'm like, yes. what the fuck is going on? <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Tone was set for me. I knew I was in trouble. This movie, despite being the absolute sleaziest of all of them was constantly yes. on the USA network. It has the most nudity and the most kills at 19. It has the most profanity. And I think no character epitomizes the crude, shrill vulgarity of this film more than Ethel. You big dildo. Eat your fucking slot. And no character oh, epitomizes the dull, blunt stupidity of this movie more than her son, Junior. Are you hear me, boy? Get off this fucking bus! 
I remember being an eight-year-old child and us mocking this movie ruthlessly for the scene where Junior is on the fucking dirt bike going, they hurt me, mama, they hurt me. I want you to chop them up, mama. And, and she's like, you hear me, boy? You hear me, you fucking idiot? You gotta get here and eat your fucking stew. And, and every other word, she calls her son like, you know, you ugly son of a bitch, you, you stupid, ugly motherfucker. And he's like, I am ugly motherfucker, mom. Yeah. And it's just, <laughs> that, that is the entirety of this movie. And here's what I want to say, Paul. Simple movies do not have to be for simpletons. This, no. the Friday the 13th series, are, they're simple films. They get more convoluted as they go along, but at their base, they're simple. This is not simple. This is for simpletons. I, I mean, this movie is so bad. It is so, so bad. The only thing that makes it, sl- gives it a slight uptick, because it's obviously not my worst of the week, is it looks better than the 3D one. The kills are kind of better-ish. And I find it so stupid, I laugh at it. I hate this film. And I mentioned it was the first one I remember seeing. And so when I was 10 or 11, it was playing to that lowest common denominator, which I didn't understand at the time. I'm like, oh, Jason kills a lot of people. (gasps) Wow, Jason wasn't really doing it that blew my 10 11 year old mind okay so let me ask you this question did you at all notice or did anybody seem to notice in 1985 the blue chirons because that's the giveaway that's not jason is the hockey mask is blue and not red that was the easter Uh, egg to tip you off no did anybody do you remember anybody even catching that or talking about it no and and i have to be honest i think that's largely because we just don't do ice hockey here like it's just not a thing oh i see i see the the fact that this mask thing exists is is a it's terrifying because we don't see a lot of them anyway and then always freaked me out watching ice hockey like damn that thing how do you a how do you see out of it b how does anyone go home wearing that because (laughs) (laughs) yeah right so, no, I didn't, but that makes perfect sense now that you say it. Uh, probably one of the only things about this film, that makes perfect sense. This is a film which, if I want to give credit to the the, C, the whole series as a whole, particularly this first half of it uh, and number six, which we'll talk about next week, is at least it acknowledges that if you survive something like this, there's going to be trauma. You're not yes. just going to bounce back and you're not going to lead a group of soldiers back to kill Jason because you know, you're tough as, tough as fucking nails and you know you don't sleep well occasionally. You are going to be fucked up for life and so what if you I what pre- if you what if you went and got a psychology degree and then went back to your hometown to work with other teenagers who've been fucked up by jason nightmare on streeting it here yeah i think that's <laughs> an interesting way of going about it i don't think it's yeah. quite as realistic although the number of clients i've had over the years is say oh, i'm a psych student because i want to help people that are like me i'm like oh, okay good yep uh, <laughs> <laughs> great the professions are headed in the right direction yeah. but like they just take it too far in this movie yes. like all the dumbness all the sleaziness all the terrible and I still think they're crap kills it's about every kill is off camera or you just see their face in close up rather than whatever's going on to them and then you see the aftermath which is just a pet peeve I have about slasher films yeah to make Tommy 
arguably one of the least likable protagonists of all time. Yes. It's just such a stupid decision. He is basically mute. He is surly. He's awful. People keep giving him a chance and he doesn't respond. He's fucking, the only person he talks to is the little kid on the camp. And even then he. he, he, Reggie is the best character in this movie. Hands down. He's he's got the most charisma by a long, long way in this film. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I, I hate what they did to him. And it's all because they want you to think he's the killer the whole way through the film. Yeah. He's meant to be. In this script's eyes, you're meant to think it's Tommy the whole way through. Which is- Terrible, terrible fucking decision. Which is a terrible decision to take your, ostensibly your protagonist. You set him up as if in the previous film, that if he's going to grow up to be a killer or he's going to be a weird killer or whatever. And then you come back to it and it's years have passed, whatever it's been, eight years, 10 years, whatever it's been. Yeah, something like that. He's yep. basically a full-grown man now. So at this point, we're- So we're basically in, in 2025. <laughs> right, we're in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that in the next episode, the timeline of the series. We're in the 90s now, even though it's still very clearly 1985. Um, And yeah, you, you bring him back and you're like, Either he needed to be off screen and the red herring, and we think there's reports that Tommy Jarvis is back at Crystal Lake, and we think he's the killer, and the twist is at somebody else. Uh, and and at the end, Tommy comes in and saves the day. Or he just they need to go in a different direction with the series rather than try to make it some convoluted mystery. Tommy Jarvis is just the killer. It's like they wanted their their cake and to eat it too, where they wanted him to be the protagonist, but they also wanted to cast him as if he were the villain. And then the reveal at the end of this being Roy or Ray or whatever, Roy, yeah. the fucking the paramedic. EM, the paramedic, and the because Joey was his son who gets butchered because a psychopath chopped his limbs off with an axe. Because the whole thing is so brutally stupid and ugly and mean spirited yep. and hateful and just crude for crude's sake. I mean, but it's why, not even mean spirited enough, Jason. If it was really properly mean spirited, it would have managed to get the kills across the line by showing a shit ton of them more. I don't know whether uh, there's an uncut version point. out there. Yeah. Like it really seems to play it. it safe for the kills. The, the, the most, as you say, the I, most deaths in this film so far of the series so far. And yet you see like three of them on camera. It's just body, body. Where's Dr. Matt? Body. No one gets I, I, shown on screen virtually. This movie was cut to shit by the MPAA oh. which is now the MPA to the point when the to go back to the quote from, from Steinman who says I shot a fucking porn in the woods. The back half of that quote is I can't imagine the footage they had to cut out of this thing because he just shot a movie like a, like a porno movie. There was more sex, more nudity and doesn't even make it in this cut. He shot so much gore and so many tits and so much sex that this doesn't even cut eggs. Yeah, yep. it was it was going to be probably more than X, right? And wow. they they just fucking cut it all out, and then this is what we get, and we're just left with, I mean, it's like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. It's all these teen delinquents in a halfway house, and none of them are likable. The only two re- redeemable characters in the movie are Reggie and his grandpa, and and his yep. grandpa did not fucking deserve to die, and I wish they would let him live. His death is meaningless. It does, yeah, I guess no chance. Um, and it's just, it's just, it's a, just an ugly movie. It's a stupid movie. The idea of we want to pivot away from Jason and create a new, we want to end the Friday the 13th series, but leave it open so we can pivot away from Jason. Okay. What fucking different, if you're worried about the reputation of your studio, no. 
Having a character in a hockey mask call him Jason isn't the problem. It's the quality and the type of movie you're making. So whether you call that character Jason or Tommy or Ray or Roy or whoever the fuck, it's it's the sleaze factor of the movie. So then when they come back the next year and make the next movie, they get the sleaziest director who makes the sleaziest version of movies of either part of this series. I'm shaking my head in consternation because it makes zero sense. Makes zero sense. Like if if you was, okay, we're going to take it into a different direction. We're going to Tommy Jarvis. He's going to be like a different type of killer than Jason. And we're going to do a different type of slasher movie or whatever the fuck. And okay. You know, and then like season of the witch obviously didn't work for audiences, but I, we commended both of us, even though you didn't like that movie, you commended the idea of an anthology series. Let's do something Mm -hmm. different with the series every year. Yeah. Yeah. Here they, they pretend like that's what they want to do. They just made a, shithouse version of Friday the 13th with a shithouse version of Jason. And it just, it's fucking sucks. And the, Jason himself, like when you rewatch this movie, and I guess I've now seen it two or three times, but no, none since 1990, it's really obvious that the paramedic of oh, yes. is, is shady is because they linger on him two or three times. Like, yes. As, as he does a weird face. And I'm oh, like, yeah. okay. Okay, clearly this is who the killer is, even if I hadn't yes. remembered that from before. <laughs> yeah. Again, 10-year-old me, what? But uh, yeah, 46-year-old <laughs> me, not so much. That's right. Oh, it's just so bad. And I, look, I, I guess I understand when you're saying it looks better, that got it over the line for number three for me. It didn't for me. I fucking hated this. That, you know, And every binge we do of questionable content, Jason, that comes about, I'm like, what am I doing to myself? What has my life become? <laughs> And this was that moment in the series. I have to would be, oh, I'm only halfway through. I've got the other rest of it to do. Dear God. So it was awful. It was just a truly awful experience. <laughs> Miguel Nunez Jr. has the best best death performance yep. in the series. Yep, he does well. And I remember him from uh, uh, Night of the Living Dead. No, Return of the no, Living Return Dead. Return of the Living was, Dead. Was, That's right. He was great in that. And, of course, Reggie, he was from Different Strokes, which was a show which was all over – 3.34 p.m. TV when I was growing up. Yeah, never saw Different Strokes. Never saw Gary Coleman. Okay. Yeah. Wouldn't work Here's today. What- you don't see it anymore. <laughs> but back then, it was a thing. All right. Here's what I would say. Um, I think the best kill of this movie is Demon on the Shitter. Yep. When the best kill of your movie is a guy. It's that a you, side character. A side character who comes out of fucking nowhere who's just eating rotten fast food out of a van in the junkyard. And they're like, let's go see your brother. And he's like, uh, he's just, he's like, here, you want sushi? You want pizza? You want enchilada? And he just has like all this random fucking food in the back of a van where he's been fucking (laughs) this random girl. His hot girlfriend. And he's in complete like Eddie Murphy raw uh, leather. And then he's like, those fuck those damn enchiladas. That is the most memorable. (laughs) Him saying those damn enchiladas is the most memorable part of this movie. And then we just linger with a camera with him in an outhouse shitting himself, just absolutely fucking shitting himself. And then he starts singing with his girlfriend. Ooh, baby. Ooh, baby. Ooh, baby. Ooh, baby. Who, why would she want to be that close to that outhouse before he shit in it, let alone when he's shitting his guts out from a rotten enchilada? Why would she want to be right up to the, the stink hole 
of his. <laughs> it makes no sense. It's yep. only that, like, why would you stage their death in a fucking, a literal shit, like a, a shit house? I don't understand it. That is the crudeness I, of I, this movie. Get your point. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's just to be gross. It's just to, to add to the, the sense of yuck. Oh, spider, relax. Film, film You'll feel space. better once you shit. Or demon. Oh, demon, relax. You'll feel better once you shit. It's like, that's what exactly are we what, watching? What, how, that's exactly how partners talk to their partners. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Paul, just shut the fuck up. You'll feel better once you shit. Better once you is, shit. Is that what uh, Patty says to you? Patty? Patsy, Patty? yeah. Patsy. No, no, it's not the way she normally talks to me. <laughs> does she sing to you when Damn you it. haven't... When you have intestinal problems, does she sing, ooh, baby, ooh, baby? Don't think I've ever heard my wife sing, actually, now that I think about it. <laughs> oh, she's a psychopath. Um, <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen her smile or laugh? <laughs> yes, I have seen those ones. Has she ever expressed a human emotion? Has she cried? Does she feel empathy for other human beings? <laughs> yeah, she goes, all right, that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um this is not the best Jason because it's not Jason. I know Jason and Roy is no Jason, sir. This is he not is good. The worst Jason, even in terms of, but just the lack of physical presence that yeah. the, clearly the actor is smaller. Nothing yeah. works here at all. When you do see him, it's, it's just, yeah, it's trying to hide it as much as you can. So you think it's Tommy because Tommy himself is a slight guy. Yeah. Um, or who's got mad martial arts prowess, but who doesn't fucking use it on Jason no. at the end of the movie. No. What are we doing? He's not even no. the person that really kills Jason. He's just a foil that gets in the way. So Reggie and whoever the final girl is, who's so Pam. unmemorable, I can't remember her name, Pam, the doctor. Yeah. Okay. Awful. It's just a you don't remember that Pam, Pam spends the entirety of the third act of the film with her nipple shown because they kept dousing her blouse. <laughs> in fucking water. <laughs> this is terrible. It's this we, movie we deserve sleaze. better. Yeah. The actors deserve better. The franchise deserves better. Friday the 13th, a new beginning is absolutely the worst in the series, and I fucking hated every second of it. Ooh, okay. All right. Well, it is a three out of ten for me. It's my number four. It is not the worst of the week for me. Uh, what's the score you're gonna give it? I'm giving it one point six out of ten, by oh, far shit. the worst of the week. <laughs> All right, Paul, it's time for a recap coming in dead last for me. It's Friday the 13th, part three, 3D, which I gave a two out of 10. The film has 12 kills. Friday the 13th, part five, a new beginning is coming in at number four with a three out of 10. It has 18 kills plus. I had that as 22 kills. So we're going to have to go back and do some auditing here. Yes, I was. Well, I think it has 18 kills plus Roy, which makes it 19. But I did see people online saying it was 22 kills, but I couldn't find okay. 22 kills. But I might have missed it. Maybe I maybe I saw a different version. I don't know. It's Friday the 13th. Uh, these numbers are going to be confusing, folks. Bear with me. Coming number three <laughs> is Friday the 13th, which I give a six out of 10. and has nine kills plus Pamela for 10. Yep, Coming number two is Friday the 13th part two, which is 6.75 <laughs> out of 10. It has 10 kills. And coming in number one, for the best of the week for me, I'm adding it to the short list, is Friday the, fir Friday the 13th, part four, <laughs> the final chapter, to give a seven out of 10, which is 13 kills. All right. So I have, oh, I'm going to check that number two. Let's see. 
No, uh, that is 13. You're correct, sir. All right. So my ranking then beginning the worst of the week for me, Friday the 13th, a new beginning, 1.6 out of 10. Number four, Friday the 13th, part three, 2.8 out of 10. Number three, Friday the 13th, part two, 4.5 out of 10. My The original Friday the 13th is my number two at the six out of 10. And like Jason, I'm adding this to my shortlist, or at least the guest shortlist, Friday the 13th, the final chapter, 7.4 out of 10. That Don't predict it will make it to the end of the season. Uh, <laughs> There's better odds than not that it won't because two of the entries on both lists are going to be Friday the 13th. Have to be Friday the 13th. <laughs> <laughs> we, front we may have just <laughs> found the problem with the whole binge movie setup. <laughs> Hey, we watch the entire spectrum of film. We honor the entire spectrum of film. You sit at the top. That is true. It's true at the bottom. And we will return next week with a very long montage summarizing <laughs> this episode. I challenge you. I challenge you to edit that together. <laughs> so until next time, folks, binge on. See ya. find any boy then he's still there